This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. are here episode 138 good everything nubians hello hello hi my friend dr carr good morning to you good morning good morning good good everything as you say and to Uh, everyone just beautiful beautiful day yeah i'm i'm excited you know there are i can't believe we're living through these times so let me just say you know this is we are living through a marker in history uh, hundreds of years from now, they're going to circle this period of time. It's going to mean something good and bad. But I think we're also in the midst of uh, of an opportunity that I know that I haven't experienced in my lifetime. So I'm I'm like excited. No, I agree. If if there's a species, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. it's funny. This is uh yeah. this is budget season. So you know, you see with this guy Rashak, they uh. The, the, the UK dumped their prime minister and he's dialing everything back. Now, this guy is a millionaire Indian who is as conservative as they come fiscally, former secretary of the exchequer or treasury, as we call it. But but the market ain't allowing them to do all that dirty business they want to do. In Australia, they just released their budget. They floated their budget, uh, executive branch. They, they're talking about building a million new homes, uh, strengthening the safety net, all kinds of things. And in Colombia, to what you just raised in terms of maybe hundreds of years from now, they'll look back and say, if there's a species, their finance minister, Luis Castro Reyes, uh, because they are now pushing the oil and gas companies. They're not trying to put them out of business. What they're saying is, y'all going to stop doing oil and gas. And we're going to take some of this tax we're about to put on y'all and use for social programs and move you to green energy. Reyes said, this isn't a matter of public policy. This is a question of whether or not we're going to exist as a species. So, I mean, the United States can keep playing. They've blown past the Paris Accords. They've got the COPA meeting coming up, the climate meeting. And they're saying, you can forget that uh, hope that we can keep it under a couple of degrees. Uh, you know, that's over. But if there's something here in terms of a species a couple of centuries from now, you're right. This is a tipping point. We're past the tipping point in a lot of ways. But this one here, this next sweat. I started to say 18 to 24 months, but in the United States, we might as well say three weeks. I heard you and Latosha. <laughs> it was like, no, yo. Her, Pam, Keith, like there's a drum beat. Listen, I could easily, we were talking off mic before we got on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I uh, could easily go down those rabbit holes of, you know, we shouldn't vote, you know, F these people, you know. Sure. You know, when we didn't have the vote, we had Greenwood and Rosewood. We were, we were self-sufficient. We had all of the things. But I'm like, I'm not leaving any power behind. You're going to give me all my power. And that means we're going to show up. Well, the Democrats and the Republicans, are the, no. Uh, if they're the same, only one party is trying to deny your reproductive rights, your voting rights, your life rights, all of the rights. Uh, only one party is doing that. And only one party... Um, would love to see the hands turn back to your ass being somewhere in a cotton field or under somebody's uh, body producing children. Anyway. How about that? Yeah, no, no, anyway, I mean, it's, it's cosplay. There's no such thing as independence. It's all interdependence. It's all interdependence. And, you know, you got the little, uh, you know, the, the mass entertainment media keeps trying to prop things up to, distract us you know this did you see that heartwarming photograph of the coal miner who rushed to get his little boy to the oh, university of Kentucky game had all the dirt in his face i'm like this is beautiful uh coal is 
dirty business and we need to be out of it. So make make that man wash his face and West Virginia Joe Manchin, you need to release some of them federal dollars so he can get retrained to get one of them solar or green jobs so that he ain't got to worry about uh, black lung. By the time his son gets his age, we stand up over him in a casket. So let's can we get back on dial back to propaganda at this point? And while we're at it, John Calipari, your slave master down there at the University of Kentucky playing basketball. I know you think you're going to pick up some cheap bargains for them boys that's transferring from Donda Academy, but you ain't no better than the rest of them. So we're going to have that conversation, too. So all them blue chip athletes, I see a few of them are leaving now, transferring from Donda. Yeah, and you know, shout out again to Deion Sanders, who mm-hmm. uh, once again became a beacon at Jackson State for the possibilities, you know, uh, okay. what it could look like with no resources. With no resources, uh, I think no resources. He had the human uh, resources, and yeah, that's the cost of HBCUs is the human resources. And that's- you want to know? You want to know why? You know, he's committed. His own son is the quarterback of the team. No question. Oh, as a matter of fact, they're gonna be on my show. Uh, the, the two, uh, you, you bringing the youngsters? Yeah, I'm bringing the youngsters. The, uh, Shakur is it, and his friend, the brother, the brother who they took from Florida State. The, the, no, uh, the both, both Sanders, I think his other son is Sanders, well, yes, yes, Deion Smith Jr. is there. Yeah, so you just racking up the, the, the big, the heavyweights. I seen The Rock reached out to you after you big upped him. <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> that's the one you trying to say, okay, all right, you see me, you and he say my whole name, Karen. No question. No question. You know, yeah, yeah. No, but the, again, it, and it's not—it's—it's not, it's the time that we're in. You know, because I've been doing this exact same thing for the last twenty-five years. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Calvin Butts made transition. I was sitting at the Daily News when he and C. Dolores Tucker were out there steamrolling CD tapes and all of that, and yes. I was like, "This is some nonsense." <laughs> is that what you wrote? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I was a columnist. That was like, and 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 he was white, you know, whitewashing over the billboards in the community, and he was absolutely correct. He was absolutely correct. My twenty-something-year-old self was not, and that's the, you know, the the pleasure of growing uh, wiser, not older. There's a lot of old dumb people, a lot of old ignorant mm-hmm. ass people. Uh, the the pleasure of growing wiser, meaning that you absorb new information and you change and you evolve and you go, oh, you know what? I have better information now. I can change my opinion on things based on the information that I've re- now received that is factual. Okay. You know what? He and C. Dolores Tucker were absolutely correct in taking an aim at this. At the time, I didn't even understand the, the uh, what you call the propaganda mill and what was happening. You know, I was just enjoying the music because the music, it sounded good. And I, yeah. and I, I could do the running man in the cabbage patch. <laughs> well, I'm sure our brother would say that, uh, when he was in his 20s, he too didn't understand. Seriously, I mean, he went down to Morehouse. In fact, again, it never ceases to amaze me. It just makes me very happy. History Makers interviewed him about 15, 16 years ago. And the first half of the interview was a sister who interviewed him. And then the second half of the interview was our brother, Larry Crow. <laughs> and so they were talking about that. He said, would you, if you had anything to do over again, would there anything you would do over? He said, yeah, I loved Morehouse. I learned so much. But I graduated a semester late because I did a little too much partying. If I could go back and spend a little bit more time in the library. If I, there's so many things he said I want to know now, 
that I feel like if I had grounded differently, then I would know about Africa, about the world, about myself, about our people. He said, I'm not saying I've done poorly, but I just wish I could go back. So I, I suspect if he was in this conversation right now, he would say, oh, no, I can't be gentle. He said, because I was like, I was listening to the music. Too. He was there in like 68, 69, 70. So he turned in. He said, I was turned up. Pledge Kappa had a ball. So, I mean, you know, we all go through that. That's why we got to be together because young people don't know what they don't know. Right. We didn't right. know. We don't know. <laughs> and, it, and it's our responsibility to grow up. That's right. And to provide that wisdom to the next generation, even if they're not going to listen, because eventually they'll remember the words that you put into their spirit. That's and they'll go, you know what? Calvin Butts was right. You know what? Dr. Gray Carr was right. You know what? Karen Hunter was right. You know, and maybe it'll take 20 years for for the, that to catch up. But it, we, we have to um, grow up enough and not be children in our adulthood, we, we have to grow up. Our children deserve elders who are wise. They deserve that. So I'm committed. Yes, wise, open, generous, interactive, continuing to make mistakes, loving, no question. They deserve that. And we deserve that of our young people. I mean, typically life forces some people, to, young people to grow up. I mean, we're both, we've been both between us been teaching now for so many decades. You know, we all see the students come back in the classroom, you know, kindergarten teachers 20 years later, 30 years later, when their former students dropping off their young person in there. I mean, you don't you don't know in the moment. I mean, you know, look at Abbott Elementary, the sister uh, Abbott, who, of course, this, the, the series is named for. She just spoke at one of her alma maters, Cheney, uh, about education. Wow. You know, and it's just like, but I mean, Joyce Abbott is able to do that because one of her students, who knew this was a child, you know what I'm saying? The, wow. the reason why they say teachers touch the future. You can't, you don't touch the, the present, you don't know, you just do the best you can. <laughs> you know? So it's a beautiful thing, you know, and she talked about that. I read her, uh, She the interview was published, part of it in the Philadelphia Tribune, the black newspaper in Philly, and uh, just came out and she was just talking about how wonderful it is to be able to now have this platform because of one of her former students, to be able to share that message of, if you are a teacher, just continue, just go ahead. I know it's, it gets discouraging sometimes, you, but you don't know you have to do this because of what you said. We owe that, we owe that to our children because they're ours. They're ours. I mean, to quote to quote Jalen Brown, we don't cancel our children. See, he's walking that. <laughs> you know, it's one thing you want to get with a knucklehead that said, you know, but then what you want to take out a whole school? Oh, so I see. So this ain't really even about us, is it? No, you don't give a damn about us. So Jalen Brown, like a few other people, he says, okay. Well, I can tell things for people who aren't, you know, that's my yeah. new team way because i can't root for lebron and them because they, they're losing and i don't hey, listen i look i you know i just you know i hate to see that these phillies beat the astros last night because i want Dusty to get that ring but i don't get too close in fact there's an interesting book i just started reading called rethinking fandom uh craig cossia terra amazing and, he, and he's Wait, talking about just happen to have a book there <laughs> no, no 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 i mean because i mean we're in that season right i mean this is i mean covid gave us a blessing a little bit of a blessing anyway, in terms of giving us a, a bit of a pause to be able to sit with ourselves. And of course, now that, you know, the people who make all the money from us not sitting with ourselves are trying to figure out ways to basically go back and pretend like the last couple of years didn't exist. They're talking about how we almost went crazy because we had to be with each other. You mean like, oh, I don't know, all of human history until yesterday. Is that, uh, that was all a mistake. We, we were waiting on electronic devices. But anyway, 
So sports is out now. This book just came out in April. It's called Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. And one of the things he's talking about is how sports culture and politics blend together and how we get caught up in this, this imaginary world that isn't real, but then begins to seep into and affect the real world. So sports is no different. So no, no, no. I mean, so yeah, when you mentioned, I, I mentioned Jalen Brown, I don't, watch, I don't watch a whole lot of NBA basketball, but um, when I think about, you know, what has happened with all this stuff around Kanye West and, you know, all the, the, the anti-Semitism, the word now, again, right in the center of our public imagination and this cancellation tour was reading financial times they said they lost half their profits by dropping the yay but it's not a i mean you know it is what it is you got to do what you got to do i mean the, the brand now has been spoiled there's a it was a good uh good op-ed today about that but anyway i'm not gonna get too deep into that right now the reason the reason i bring it all up in the context of celebrity and sports is you know somebody like Jalen brown He's a basketball player. He was signed with Donda. What is it? Donda Sports, I think. Is that 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 was that's that's uh yes, what? yes that, that had two two big signings and then both people left, so they have no athletes. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, and I and I remember that listen, actually, you know, maybe help help us with this because I know you probably know all of the the particularly the, the black agents. I'm thinking about a cat who played quarterback for Tennessee State many years ago who went off, got a law degree, who was an agent, um, Brian Ransom, and uh, a number of other black agents. Of course, Rich Paul just came in, and they just say they couldn't stop Rich Paul. So now they got to figure out how to, you know, deal with him. But, you know, that network for years has been um, a parasitic network of exploitation of athletes by agents. And I'm not even going to put black athletes and white agents. I'm going to say athletes and agents because what does an agent do? I mean, an agent negotiates contracts. And why is that necessary? Unless you're one of those athletes back in the day who was, was their own agent. Um, but I mean, and I don't get too deep into this either. I'm just, you know, to the point, I want to get to the point about this question of celebrity, where the nexus of celebrity and power and politics meets. Um, and the, the idea that, you know, and I, 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 whenever I talk to elementary school students or junior high school or middle school students now, I, I would I say to them, I say, how many of y'all want to play ball? And of course, all the hands, I want to be a rapper, I want to be an entertainer, I want to be an athlete, no problem. How many of y'all want to be lawyers if you, if you go up? And if I can get one or two hands up, I say, okay, now all y'all friends, right? Yeah, okay, now here's the thing. Now, all of y'all that are going to be in the NBA and the NFL, y'all need to be her friend because she need to be y'all agent. Because when y'all get old, and y'all out there sweating, running up down the field. She gonna be sitting up in the skybox eating food with five percent of your contract. So y'all better be nice to her. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And see, while all y'all individuals making money, she gonna have five percent of all of y'all contracts. And it, that's what an agent does. So I'm just saying because I know all y'all gonna make the league. But in case you don't, y'all stay friends. And some of y'all go to law school because the two or three that make the league. Y'all should be their agent because y'all are their friends. Y'all trust each other, right? Yeah, okay. I mean, in other words, that's how we have to start thinking because when you get to a certain point where these cats sign with Don to sports because they want to build some power, they want to be black owned. Then the one will go left. It's like, okay, bro, we got to go. Why? Because see, this is a thing. This thing is organized. 
and they will freeze us out. So we got to drop you. Okay, no harm, no foul. You ran your mouth. You was out there talking crazy. You didn't have a class, a study group, whatever. So now you out here. No problem. These cats got to drop that. But then, see, you social structure folk who are saying, we don't, we don't make a difference between the ball players or the children. Now you want to close the school. Name for his mama. Okay. I'm going to say less right now. Because Jalen Brown said it all. Okay, I drop him as an agent. Wait, y'all trying to close the school? Wait, and all y'all canceling tournaments? Wait, now y'all got a pipeline that you think is pretty firm. A kind of slavery pipeline. Yes, I said it. Slavery pipeline where you exploit the labor of athletes of all colors for profit. You know, Big Ten. What they call it? Power Five. You know, you people right now who's scheming in the back room trying to figure out which one of these schools going to offer Deion Sanders more money than God to get the hell up out of Jackson, Mississippi before he wrecked the whole game. And they will make, I mean, I hope Deion stays another 20 years. Hope he stays another two years. Might not stay another one year. Why? Because right now they're like, okay, we got to gauge this. This ain't a, this ain't a sideshow now. Uh, ESPN game day down there this weekend. This boy going in and Nick Saban jumped the gun. No, you ain't going to take my job. No. But then here come Charles Bartley thundering his Leeds Alabama ass out of the world. <laughs> Charlie, but it's called him Chuck, Chucky Two Bills or whatever his minder there at TNT was saying. And then here he come. And here come Bo Jackson. Bo know a whole lot, but Bo don't know white supremacy. We both talking about uh would be a perfect fit for Auburn. No, what would be a perfect fit for Auburn is you stood up and said something about that racist Tommy Tuberville. That would be a perfect fit for Auburn, uh, Brother Jackson. But no, what you you gonna try to get Auburn to poach? If Deion Sanders go to Auburn, let me tell you right now, in the slave economic concern, also known as the Southeastern Conference, Auburn that just sent to uh, an old football coach to the United States Senate who is determined to take us back to slavery days, and is out there talking about it. You know what, Bo? I love watching you play for the Kansas City Royals, running for the Oakland Race. It's a beautiful thing, man. But you need to shut up on that other thing because you ain't no better than Herschel Walker when it comes to this whole thing. And first of all, why are we listening to you in the first place? Why are we listening to you? This is what Craig Cassiotera is writing about. Why are we listening to you in the first? We listen to you because the market has a place for you. So yes, Adidas. Yes, the fashion houses. Yes, the social media networks. Yes, Revolt TV. Yes, YouTube. Yeah, okay. Kanye, cancel. Okay. Then you come for the kids? So the man Jalen Brown is like, we don't cancel our children. So y'all going to cancel all the dates for them to play basketball in these tournaments. Maybe put pressure so you can get them to leave that school. And I'm not talking about the quality of the school. I'm not talking about Kanye West's jokes about uh, I don't read books. And then people out here on social media, thumb, thumb warriors talking about, see, that's cool. They don't even read books. Okay, here we go. Opening your thumbs, putting your brain on display. And then, but I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the fact that Y'all trying to get the school closed and you want to cancel all the tournaments because you maybe you're hoping that these athletes will then transfer because you still want them at Kentucky. You still want them at North Carolina and Duke. You still want them at the University of, uh, of Tennessee. You still want them. You just you just don't want them associated with Kanye West. OK, I get that. But that's Donda Academy. You want to close the school? Jalen Brown, 
it seems from the written reports from the published reports and what he put on social media, okay, that's now you cross the line. We don't cancel our kids. And I, you know, and, and so I guess what I'm thinking is, Professor Hunter, as we open up today and think about these questions of power and institution building in a pivotal moment in the history of the species, we had to ask ourselves how one of the things we had to ask ourselves is how do we deal with generating the type of collective thinking and institution building so that we can be much more thoughtful and act much more um, collectively in our interests, which almost always, in fact, I really can't think of a time in the modern world where the interests of African people haven't also been the interests of humanity. Come on. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> when, have, when have Black people ever done anything that harmed humanity? Except rogue Black people like Larry Elder making fun of Nancy Pelosi's uh, husband getting attacked with a hammer. Well, well, you're a clown. I mean, so we can we know that ain't got nothing to do with Blackness. There's another side of that we'll talk about in a minute. We talk about Calvin Butts and where he went to school and how James Cone talked about ontological Blackness, which is very close to what Steve Beacon was talking about. If you are on the side of humanity, Calvin Butts would say, James Cone taught us that's ontological Blackness. <laughs> Meaning it ain't your skin color. You are standing for justice. That's what he said. Howard Thurman and them taught them when they, he was at Morehouse. This is Jesus and the oppressed. You know, Calvin Butts is saying, if you're on the side of the right, then that's the black side. <laughs> you understand? Because that's the side Jesus was on. And last I checked, Jesus was not white. But I don't know. I mean, Professor Hunter, I mean, you can't the children. What side you on? After Kanye, what the hell they got to do with these children? I mean, this I feel like, and uh, zero tolerance, you know, accountability. These are the themes that I'm marching forward with, right? We we can't be tolerant of a little bit because all you need is a little bit of yeast to explode the whole thing, right? So the 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 glass of water has to be pure. We can't put a little fly in the ointment, not a, not a single fly, not a vector that will then spread uh, bad things, you know? So yeah, we have to clean house, due north, know what due north is, get on the same page as it relates to humanity and move forward. I mean, it's not a difficult equation. I was reading a lot, you know, Kyrie's in the news, Kanye, and I feel like it's the same thread because there's a seeking of power. There's a seeking of power in places without knowledge, right? Because if you had knowledge, you wouldn't be seeking it. Well, we're the first this, we're, we're the first everything. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. So if that's the, the premise upon which we stand, then let's go back. And you did this clock. This is a, oh, was a yeah. Pastor. And it was, and you did it quickly. Well, we're going to come back to it. That's in the class. We'll, when we get to framing question one, um, how do we undertake the study of Africana? That clock metaphor is very powerful. Yeah. Okay. So on Monday, we're going to start with with that. Monday, yeah, Monday, well, Monday, Monday, we do the um, the first two readings we have Abdullah Kalamat's piece from the uh, the history of black studies and then a little piece I wrote called What Black Studies Is Not. We're going to spend that first hour on Monday night, which Uraeus reminded us is on All Hallows' Eve. So some people might be out trick-or-treating, although we need to be out with the treating or voting so that we don't get to trick. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but we, we're going to talk about this question of the kind of history of Black studies. And then the following week, when we get uh, into the actual framework, we'll start with that. We'll, we'll use that clock metaphor. But we should we should talk about it now because that's part of, like I said, we've talked about it before here. And now we're putting it in line with the actual syllabus driven course 
as distinct from this space, which is a course too, but I mean, just a different. This, this, this class is so important. Um, those of you who aren't familiar with it, um, Dr. Carr will be launching an Africana Studies class in New We will be launching it. We, <laughs> yes, we will be. Teaching. You're, we're, we're all learning. We, yes, we're, all, we're all learning. We're all learning. Uh, and you are inviting us to also, you know, participate in a way that is, does not exist in the, in the modern uh, education right. system right now. So you will literally be jailbreaking the university with That's this class and That's set right. the framework. You know, and as as I'm excited because you know I've taken a couple of classes at Drew, but this is something that I think is going to be uh, life changing, groundbreaking. What I'm also confronted with is, you know, our separation of memory has been so intentional. Yes. And so, you know, so long yes. that, you know, we in our DNA, we notice something more. We notice something more to this. Mm -hmm. Like, we notice something more to us. We know there's something more. So we grab on any little bit that we can find that makes us feel like, yeah, that's it. Yes. But it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit of truth. But it's not <laughs> the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. So we are going to explore the whole truth in this class. And I think right. you know, when we see the 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 folk who are getting canceled and chastised and excoriated, it's not their fault. No. So, you know, we're going to give them grace, too, at the same time as we want them to be quiet because you don't know enough to talk. And you don't know enough to retweet and to to like something, and we need to know more. So I just want to say thank you publicly for uh, giving us the more, uh, so that we cannot look and be ignorant. No, thank you. No, thank you. And, and it's hard work. We know that we've been teaching a long time, and, and we know that in order to transform it, we're going to have to invert it. In other words, you know, the the the, the real power of the formal academy in the Western concept of the academy is to, and we talked about this maybe uh, summer before last and we really got going well. Um, William Clark, Academic Charisma and the Origins of the Modern Research University. I mean, it's a shelf of books that deals with this question of where these universities come from. I always have my law students the first month of class read uh, a chapter from William Brundage's the medieval origins of the modern legal profession, where he talks about these institutions that kind of anchor this concept of Western civilization. It was an op-ed in the Financial Times Wednesday, I think, on the global West. Now, the whole concept of Western society. And he says, you know, and Brundage in that book on uh, medieval legal profession talks about the corporation, which, of course, we see now threatens to capsize the entire species completely be unregulated. We'll talk about this in a minute in terms of oil prices and things like that that are going on. The um, the legal profession, as it is set up, came coming out of Europe with its, some of its roots in Rome, and then you see it really burst forth by the 12th and 13th centuries in Western Eurasia, Europe, moving from proctors and judges and lawyers, and then academics, which leads to the third of the institutions, which he calls um, the university system. And then the fourth one he talks about is constitutional democracy. These are the institutions, constitutional democracy, the corporation, the university, the legal profession, as we think about them in the contemporary moment. And somebody in the chat, I just glanced, said, you know, this question of being first is a kind of social structure thing, but it does also speaks to the question of what are the foundational ways that we move through the world and which 
and how has humanity, regardless of where we've migrated across the ball, have we grappled with these issues of, um, of being, of ways of knowing, and have we passed that information on from generation to generation to generation, movement and memory, to use another phrase from our um, conceptual categories, which we'll be going through in some detail in our class. Um, you know, the big questions of existence, as Richard Pryor once said, like, who am I and how do I get to Detroit? No, in other words, <laughs> the whole question of who am I in time and space, basically, that was a brilliant joke that concretized the issue of existence and then context. That's what we're talking about. But, you know, so who's first in that becomes less important as what we think first signifies. If, if, if first signifies the most insightful or the one who has the longest experience-based insight, then you would absolutely have to ground that in Africa because that's where all of humanity came from. And all of human existence in terms of trial and error took place in Africa until very recently, which speaks then to that 24-hour clock you're talking about. They will talk about it in some detail. So when you think about, I just, you know, for those who may not have been around as we continue to build momentum and people continue to come and come into this space. And uh, I don't know, let me pause here for a moment and ask you, Prof, whether you've been inundated because, of course, we see the headlines now with Elon Musk uh, triggering golden parachutes and people scared as hell. Have people been running saying, what must I do to be saved? I mean, is Nubia yeah. the art that people are coming to <laughs> as the Twitter yeah. number of followers capsize? I'm seeing numbers shrink all over. What's going on? Well, I've, I've been uh, purposefully not um, promoting coming to Nubia. So yeah, no, of course not. Yeah, right. <laughs> So yeah, people, where do we go? And I'm just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Johnny Gill. Where do we go from here? Do we walk away? Yeah. Because there, you know, kind of the social media platform, people are in the habit of being in an echo chamber, spewing things yeah. forth their mouths, like you just mentioned Bo Jackson and Charles Barkley and Kylie Irving. Like it's a place where you just spew things. That's not what Nubia is. And if you have habits, I don't have the time, energy, or inclination to um, police the habits of people coming in. People have to come in with discipline and with understanding of what this is. They have to come in with a brick, understanding that they're here to build. They're not here to have things foisted upon them. This is a participatory, even your class. We are all engaged in this in this exercise together. So I haven't been out there. Come on in to do it. No, I haven't no, no, done no, that. No. 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 no, yeah. What do you think is going to happen over there? I don't care. So no, I don't care either. It's just no, funny. I'm not saying it like I don't care because you know where we put our attentions. We have very limited amount of energy and Fact all that up. is. You know, I'm not putting zero attention. Three hours on my show. I'm in Nubia with the Karen Hunter show people. Yes. The Regis started her group in Nubia, yes. so during her two hours, she's going to be in Nubia with the people and you know that's where my my heart lies with my folk uh in nubia uh twitter is there as a uh information you know we'll drop guests because most people are still on twitter sure okay so our team at sirius xm drops stuff on on twitter but i interact in nubia because that's where i'm being fed and where i feed so um i don't know what's gonna happen i think we Water seeps its own level, but I think we also are used to poison. 
So we will stay in the book. I think we're also used to just a little bit of poison. We're used to it. We're, we used to, we've adapted. I, I made the, the chitlin analogy as it relates to even the N-word. We don't have the capacity to be pristine enough to, to have the kind of progress that we say we want, right? Because that requires a sacrifice, whether it's not watching the NFL, because that will break the back of this, the behemoth that it is to then do some things differently. We don't have the capacity, because I like the NFL too much. We don't have the capacity to turn off R. Kelly because the music is just too good, but we don't want to even send that message to our children that this is what's important to us. We don't have the capacity to stop using the N-word. I, I use the analogy of Taylor Swift doing her whole catalog over to regain her power. I saw you say that. Yeah. yeah, and I'm like, well, you know, all these artists, they're such wordsmiths. They know words, right? They're really good with turning phrases. They can't read, and they have the money, because a couple of them are billionaires at this point, to recast your whole catalog to sh show a shift and a change and a maturity and an understanding of where we are, to remove that word and replace it with something that is even more powerful and galvanizing. Yeah, I get it. This is your telling your story of growing up in different places and what you did on the streets. But well, mm -hmm. most of y'all were lying anyway. <laughs> Not that you were lying. Y'all want the gangsters and everything. So come on, come on. How about we feed the next generation good food? Mm. How about we not give them mm. chitlin? And I was making the analogy. Yeah, we know how to make chitlins taste delicious, but it's still shit. How about and that? Trails. And it's still cow tails, oxtails, and it's still pig's feet and snouts. It's still the, the, the tail and the snouts and the entrails and the scraps. And we are deserving of more. So, yeah. so if yeah. we are, then let's show it, right? Why not? Why, why do we compromise? And every compromise we make, mm. like relationship to one another or relationship to this greater global population tells the world what we're really about. So you're mad at other people for having a zero tolerance for talking greasy about them, but you don't have the capacity to do that yourself. So you are mad at them. How about that? It's time for us to, you know, like, let's, let's really grow up and be about the things that we say we're about. And it's not um, sanctimonious. No, it's and not. If it is, then, then let's be sanctimonious. You know, like I'm. It's time because it's time. where we are right now, it feels like a hamster wheel of going nowhere at all. Other than now, we're gonna complain. The people won't do nothing for us. The politicians, we're sitting there bitching when we formed the world. <laughs> formed the world and <laughs> and got pulled into a system that we don't have to endure. I mean, we don't have to, and that we've never endured. I, I, we've never just gone quiet. When we get into the whole, uh, our, our, our second framing question is um, how do Africans uh, practice self-determination? What are similarities and differences in practices of self-determination among African people uh, in the United States, in the Western Hemisphere, in Africa? And that really takes us into this, what Ivan Van Sertum will call this 500-year room. So 1500, 1600, 1700, that is the, on the clock metaphor, the 11 to midnight hour. And we can talk about that in a minute, but um you raising you know a very important observation w one of the reasons calvin butts when he was at morehouse say he he wasn't thinking about going to seminary larry asked him uh oh where was the sister before before larry got took up the interview he was like so did you have a calling and he chuckled he was like well you mean uh no it wasn't like a a, a mule turned around and spoke to me and i after, man are you clowning getting called <laughs> I mean, like, but what he said was he said, I wanted to influence people and be a help to my people. 
He said he wanted to be mayor of New York City since he was like third grade. He said, well, he didn't go that route. When he was in Morehouse, he's a philosophy major. He said, maybe I'll go into industrial psychology or maybe I'll be a college professor. And then he encountered that incredible faculty, Benjamin Elijah Mays, who his mother worshiped because she was from Georgia, both his mother and father from Georgia. And when he, he, he got into Trinity, he wanted to go to Trinity because they had the kind of program. He, he looked at Cornell. He said, Cornell's kind of cold. I don't know if I want to go up there. Trinity's got the stuff. And they told him at this uh, kind of counseling fair, uh, well, we'll admit you, your grades are good, but we can't get you a scholarship. He said, then this white man said to him, but if you go in them colored colleges and colored schools and, you know, do, do your grades that first year, hit it real good, then maybe we can admit you and find you some scholarship money. He said, we went home. I sit with my mom. And we didn't say nothing to him. We didn't say nothing to him right then because, you know, we ain't going to get in no fight. My mother said, you ever think about Morehouse? And she said, he said, uh, hmm, no. She said, you remember Benjamin Mays? Yeah, you heard, you like Benjamin. Yeah, I do. She said, I heard Benjamin Mays. She went to Savannah State, apparently his mom. She said, she was in Georgia. She heard Benjamin Mays. And she said, when I heard Benjamin Elijah Mays, when I was a student, I said to myself, if I have a son, I want him to be like that. And that's how Calvin Butts ended up at Morehouse. And then he's at Morehouse. He's still not thinking about going to, to be a minister. And down there, he makes this recognition. This is why I'm tired to exactly what we're doing right here. He said, he's in conversation. They're in study groups. They're doing it. And this is the thing of study group. They're studying. And then, I don't know if it was Bill Strickland. Somebody said something to him and it dawned on him. You know, the institution we control is the church. I'm going to seminary. In other words... Where can we go that we control a place where we can set the agenda, we can debate and argue, but it's anchored in a in ways of knowing, in a morality, in an ethics. So we ain't debating about that. We know it's common purpose. That's the church. Well, guess what? Nubia is a form of that. Nubia is not a church. We got common ways of knowing, common ethics. We're going to agree, disagree, agree, but, we're, but our objective is consensus. And we own it. We can't be canceled to a place you own. So, yeah, when Butt said that, and when you're talking, you know, it makes me think this is the same thing. What do we, and, th and that's how you have power. You have power when you give yourself from, I heard you say that. I heard you say that to Latasha Brown. You know, why are you waiting on somebody else to give you permission to have your power? <laughs> so why are you asking people for permission and you have power? Claim your power. Yeah. But how, how 400 years of being told you got to come and ask me for everything. And that's right. been our. Conditioning, you know, like Pavlov, there's a reason why, you know, we study psychology, the conditioning of it all. The I had a great conversation this week with Ron Finley, who said the greatest gift he had was dyslexia because it, mm. it, it, he was always thinking differently and told that he couldn't do things that he knew he could do. So it made him throw away all of the notions of anything anyone was telling him and to think for himself. And it was the most powerful gift because he, he said, if I didn't have dyslexia, I would have fell right into you know, and many of us are, ex we excel excelled in school, you know, because we're right away. And you fall right into the drumbeat of what they want you to do. And you never break free from that to think for yourself. And we have generations, those of us who are educators. My biggest thing is to challenge my students to rethink everything you've been taught. Come on. Everything. Your mama told you everything. We're going we're gonna to dismantle everything. Jeez. And I'm, I'm not teaching philosophy or psychology, but yeah, this is, these are life skills you will never get any place else. We're going to examine everything you thought about things, and we're going to talk about it. For these three, I get three hours. We're going to talk about it. So, and it's, it's liberating, you know, and there's a reason why these students never leave me. They follow me. 
Yeah. I got 10 of them at Series XM. <laughs> I mean, I'm MSNBC. I had a bunch of kids there uh, interning and, and they don't leave. They're, some of them are in their 40s now and they're still, Professor, what's up? You know, and it's yes. genuine because I gave them a clean glass of water when no one else did. And I know that that was important. And you can't go back. You can't go back once you taste. It's like, oh, I can do, I can do it. Yeah, yeah, no. I was drinking that crap. I can't drink that no more. What was I doing? And who did this to me? Who gave me this? This is this is industrial waste. (laughs) Why y'all gave me this? And we know, right? And I mean, Ron Finley was like, "Uh, "Who? You don't have to go to the store. I pick my food off my trees every day. I eat from my own, and I make soil. You know, Mm -hmm. there's only some this amount of plantings that are left." He was like, "According to who?" We can make soil. We can make soil. We can make soil. We don't have to wait for the the earth is you know there, but we got leaves. We got uh, all kinds of material. He said, "I'm a soil maker. I make soil." And I was like, "Yeah, don't give me a seat at your table. Here, where's the wood? Let's build tables, That's multiple tables. I ain't trying to be at your table. No question. You no know, question. but you're in fact, you're really that. trying to be at my table, but." You really want it to appear as your table, but you keep peeking over here, and then we look around, and you then took the table making uh, <laughs> recipe, and instead of using wood, which will rot and then go back into the earth, you make it out of plastic. Now we got a crisis going on. Shout out to Jerry Lee Lewis, by the way, who died. Um, but at any rate, you're always trying to figure out what we're doing, and then give yourself the credit for it. No shade on him, but you know, I'm supposed little Richard and them probably having a conversation with him on the other side. If indeed all the ancestors end up at the same place, you never know. But <laughs> um, you know, got a bill, but no, but what you're raising is interesting because there were times and there have been times when we felt and probably didn't have an option. In fact, I was just, uh, I was just looking at a, a new documentary, uh, this out now it's on the, the Apple TV platform, but I had to watch it because it was my man. I mean, so many of his Louis Armstrong, right? Louis Armstrong. Yes, I was yeah. thinking about you. Have you when seen I- it? I've not seen it, but I'm going. It's on my watch list. Oh, yeah, I, I did Halloween yeah. for this week, but yeah, I'm watching. Yeah, you, yeah, you definitely got. You definitely got. I mean, because you know, I, I'm not checking for that, but I read. I was reading one of the papers, and I saw a review. I said, "Oh, so of course." Then I click, click, click. Oh yeah, I gotta watch this. So I just stopped everything and watched it. Why? Because you know, Louis Armstrong, I think, is such a remarkable example of to borrow again once more from the masses and mainstream issue um that w.e.b du bois wrote when he wrote the um the obituary his obituary for carter g woodson he said the life of carter g woodson shows you what race prejudice can do to a human soul and what it is powerless to prevent so in the documentary as you all can imagine you know the famous ozzy davis one he, he gave this interview many times but he's got they got one of them where he talks about how he saw Louis Armstrong when Louis Armstrong didn't know that anybody was looking. And in that moment, he saw the real Louis Armstrong and he never made fun of Louis Armstrong grinning and mopping his face with the handkerchief ever again because he realized that, you know, number one, that was genuinely Louis Armstrong, just a beautifully effusive. I mean, I, I didn't know, obviously didn't know Louis Armstrong. I do remember the day he made transition, though. And I don't know why it stuck in my head in 1971 because I was six years old. But I remember on the porch in Nashville, the little house we grew up in and my auntie coming across the street and telling my mom that Louis Armstrong had died. And I was sitting in the swing on a little porch, you know, them little iron two seaters where you go back and forth rocking. And they were standing there on the porch talking. And I remember looking up in the sky the same way I looked up 
<laughs> if you can see the wind blowing through the trees. And I'm like, I wonder, is that him? I mean, you know, just things, children. I don't know why that stuck in my mind. But I like to believe because he was such a powerful ancestor and still just a powerfully resonant spirit. And so, and it's a, and it's a beautiful documentary because it's primarily composed of his recordings. And this speaks, I think, to another element of what we're talking about, to, in the same element, really, in terms of institutions and control. If you ever get a chance to go to Corona Queens, go to Louis Armstrong House and Museum, the house that his wife, Lucille, his fourth wife, his fourth wife uh, bought, bought without him knowing, because he was like, well, we're on the road all the time. We don't need no, uh, we can just stay in hotels. And she's like, no, I want a house. And she had worked for like 12, 13 years anyway, before they got married. And then, so she and her mom, basically, while Armstrong was out on the road, a lot of times she would be with him, her, so her mom played a huge role. They bought the house with her money. And then she told him, just as they were getting ready to come off the road, he was like, what, you bought a, how did you get the money? Did I have money? I said, but now that I told you, you can take over the payments. <laughs> and so, but she said, once he got in that house, it was the best thing that ever happened. And I've heard that story told many times, but I, Ken Burns ain't tell it this way. Because I know Ken Burns has a you know a narrative style, and I respect Ken Burns. I admire Ken Burns. I think Ken Burns is an incredible filmmaker for the social structure. You're not telling my story, brother. You can't tell my story, and that's fine. Everybody got a story to tell, but you're, you should tell your story. Don't tell my story because it's too many too many hummings and moanings and too many Negroes looking sorrowful at the camera when they tell us the story. See, I don't want to hear all that. I'm, we're gonna tell our story, but at any rate. Let me go to get too far afield on this. So if you when you go to the Louis Armstrong Museum, which is the house they lived in, it's been preserved as it is. Armstrong has a den, a study that is lined with reel-to-reel audio. He recorded incessantly. People come over the house, he press record, record a conversation. He played music into the, the reel-to-reel. Sometimes he would play recordings of things he had played, other things he liked, albums, into the recordings. So he did a, a great deal with uh, these reel-to-reel these -reel tapes. And so what you see is Armstrong's reel-to-reel -reel tapes become a sliver of a window into his governance formations. But Armstrong didn't have Black agents to bump for him in contracts. So he ends up with Joe Glazer, who was a gangster who can you know keep the other gangsters off him that's what sent me back to the shelf as i was watching this thing four day in the morning the other day uh gerald horn's wonderful book jazz and justice racism and the political economy of the music this is the book where gerald horn and he writes about armstrong and glazer and these gangsters in chicago and threatening to kill louis armstrong so you need another gangster to keep the gangsters off him and there's a clip where you see him, I don't know if it's Dick Cavett or Mike Douglas or some, he's on, on a television show in the, in the 60s. And he's explaining to this host why he needed a Joe Glazer character. And he says, you know, I, I was told uh, as a young man that if I'm out on the road, always get you a good white man. So you got a good white man behind you. Then he puts his hands, he slaps his hands on the interview. I think it's Mike Douglas. I think it's Dick Cavett probably would have crumbled under how heavy Pops hit his shoulder. Pap! And you can hear the audible pap as he puts his hand on his shoulder. He's I was told, get you a good white man behind you. Because a uh, N-word needs a good white man or some phrasing like that. He's using the N-word with reckless abandon on network television. Mike Douglas and Dick Cavett. And these white boys just looking. You can't say this. This ain't 2022. 
But anyway, I'm bringing all that up to say that that is Louis Armstrong having to go to negotiate a social structure that is very uh, insistent and incendiary. At the same time, in his governance formation, in that home that Lucille Armstrong built for them, made for them, he is himself. And when you hear the recordings, and you know, it, one of the great pleasures of my life is to have gone to the Louis Armstrong Museum. We were up there for something else, conference or something. And I deliberately said, okay, I'm blocking out this time and day. Where are you going? Don't worry about that. I went to the Louis Armstrong Museum, spent the day just walking around in the house, just going in the gift shop and getting books and stuff like just being sitting there watching the the uh, the the introductory film that they show uh, there in the in the visitors entrance where they have a nice center there and they're building Louis Armstrong archives. Queens College has this archives across the street. And so, uh, you know, it's it's built now. I mean, I haven't been up there in, in, in a few years. And then the courtyard where they have uh, concerts, live concerts on his birthday. I mean, it's just because he knew everybody in the neighborhood. They love being in that neighborhood. So just being in that space and then going in the study, going in Louis Armstrong's little study. It's not a huge house. And the study's small, but that was his space. And as his wife says, Lucille said, you know, he was in there, he closed that door, he'd be in there for hours, writing, typing. He was a constant writer, writing letters, typing letters, and all the stories that come out. And Armstrong, in one of the tapes, that it, they begin, uh, what's his name? Sasha Jenkins was is the uh, is the, the cat who put this documentary together, the director, producer of Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. And, you know, some footage I've never seen before, clips from other things I've seen before, like clips from the film Satchmo the Great when he when they went to Africa in 1956 with Nkrumah and others, some photographs I hadn't seen. He always told the story about how he was going from place to place and they were, the, the, the Ghanaians were setting out stuff for music and dance. That he playing his horn, they playing their horn. The sisters are dancing. It's a beautiful thing. He said, I looked and I saw one. I saw this lady and she looked like my mom. She looked like my mother. And then they showed that clip. He said, I made him come over and say, take a picture. And I seen the sister for the first time. I said, yeah, that. He looks just, man, she looks like his mom. I mean, so he said, I, we were going home to Africa. I mean, this is Louis Armstrong, right? But here's the point I want to make in terms of this question of governance and social structure, because this documentary, I think, is a great example of how who we are to other people and who we are to each other are different and how Armstrong lived his life on that line, but how the social structure narrates him, how we are socialized sometimes to narrate him because of the social structure, Ozzie Davis talking about that when Marcellus even talks about that a little bit and then how he narrated himself and who he was to all of us and, and who we, who he was to other people he knew who other people were to him that governance formation it's a very different thing so the documentary opens and he, there's a quote he says uh, they're asking him about the United States of America you know the greatest country in the history of the world and so they ask him about America and he says well American people they're the most grandest people on earth and I'm from America. Well, quite naturally. I don't have no effing flag. I'm using effing. He says the word on the tape. He at home. This is governance talk. So he says, American people, you know, they're the most grandest people on earth. And I'm from America. Well, quite naturally. He says, but I don't have no effing flag other than a black flag. What? Well, run the tape back. I don't have no effing flag 
except for a black flag. Now they tell all the stories that we know about the life of Gunnar Armstrong, his critique when the Little Rock Nine was set upon. He said, you know, Eisenhower, I need to walk them down. They call Orville Faubus, uh, the governor of Arkansas, an uneducated plowboy. He roasting them. You know, you see the interview where he's getting ready, to State Department getting ready, to send him around to sell Americanism one more time when he just was going to play his music. And they ask him, what do you think? He said, well, you know, he shouldn't send me right now because, uh, you know, I don't like what's going on. Ain't no sense in telling no lie about it. If they ask me over there in Russia, I'm going to have to tell them the truth. Oh, this is going to be problematic. And then, of course, then they then Eisenhower sends the troops in. Armstrong telegraph, uh, telegraphs. Eisenhower said, if you come down here, Little Rock, I'll come in with you. We'll walk them in together. This is Louis Armstrong, you know, quiet. But at any rate, I, I raised that because they also have recordings where he says, I play the Star Spangled Banner. And, it, you know, I feel like, you know, like anybody else, I'm just as proud as anybody who has a gun and goes out there. And I'm saying, and in the next tape, he's calling all the white boys, C suckers, MFs. <laughs> so I'm like, this is, man, this is so recognizable, so familiar <laughs> to how we move through the world. Right? And so, and then at one point, of course, now here come the narrative spine, because again, this it, documentaries are examples of cultural meaning making and movement and memory in our categories. Remember the movement and memory category in our, in our Africana States framework is how did or do people of African descent remember experiences and put them in our collective memory and continue to talk about them. Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, Bob Marley, Mary McCabe, you name it. Um, anything, you know, we, we want to think about, you know, the, uh, the uh, Agoji, the female warriors of Dahomey, and then you create the Dora Malaji which is an Afro-futuristic gloss on it. It's movement and memory as you move through time and space. Well, documentaries are movement and memory. They may or may not be from us, for, for us, by us, for the world, by us, governance-grounded movement and memory. They could be social structure movement and memory. And this documentary seems to have elements of both. But in one element, they're talking about this Star Spangled Banner business. And you hear him playing, and it's clearly different. It's a Jimi Hendrix, it's a Whitney Houston, it's a Marvin Gaye. In other words, it's a song, but it ain't that stuff Francis Scott Key was writing when he was trapped in the bottom of that British boat in the Chesapeake outside of Baltimore when he was on the wrong side. But you hear him playing, and then this narrator comes in who, I forget the white dude's name, wasn't John Hammond, one of them critics. Anyway, he said it was somewhere, maybe Newport, I don't remember now. And Armstrong played the Star Spangled Banner and James Baldwin was standing there next to this white dude. And the white dude says, Baldwin looked at me and said, that's the first time I've liked that song. And then of course, they leave Baldwin and go into the white movement in memory. That's because, you know, Baldwin recognized that while America, he said all that. <laughs> you don't even know what he meant by that. Now, if you're in a governance formation, you might hear that with different ears. Cause as he was playing, I'm saying, Hey man, I like that song. Now I don't sing uh, the Star Spangled Banner and will never sing it again in my life, except to make a point and then I ain't gonna sing the whole thing. Except to deconstruct it. Why the hell would I do that? Because Pops also said, I ain't got no effing flag, but a black flag, my man. <laughs> now, see, y'all can't, you know, it's hard to pull that apart, but now why am I saying all this is, is, is kind of, um, in the context of what we're talking about today in terms of power and institutions. Louis Armstrong was born at a time when black institutions could not protect him in the way that he would have loved to have been protected. He had the governance formations. He had Joe Oliver, his man, who sent for him, as he always said, his, his first wife, Lil Harden Armstrong, 
who was in the, the Joe Oliver's band in Chicago when Armstrong comes up there, who pushes Louis Armstrong to leave Joe Oliver and be first trumpet player because he says, <laughs> she says to him, I, don't, I ain't gonna be married to no second trumpet player. I'm gonna be married to the first trumpet player. So you want to lead Joe Oliver. I can't lead Joe. Oh, well, it's Joe or me. So in many ways, I mean, look, and in fact, Lil Armstrong wrote her own memoir and there's been books written about it. I'll never be able to find her memoir. I have it around here somewhere. Well, all the stuff, including the one by Louis Armstrong's, the sister who says she's Louis Armstrong's daughter who wrote her own book a few years ago. But at any rate, because they said, oh, Louis Armstrong, Louise Armstrong never had any children. It don't mean he don't have any children. But anyway, story for another day. But he, they had their own networks. They had their own governance formations. And those formations were black. They were grounded in black form, uh, formation. You see the brother and sister who took him in after they put him in the colored waves home in, in New Orleans. All this is there. And, he, and she's, they have a video of her talking about how, you know, they brought him in. They have the band director who he brought out on stage at one point. He had Leonard Bernstein talking about, you know, Armstrong introduced the African, you know, which is absolutely true. Absolutely true. And then and then uh, Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, as Armstrong is recording with the New York Philharmonic, says, you know, what we're doing with the New York Philharmonic when we play the St. Louis Blues is, is a pale imitation of what you're doing, because what Louis Armstrong is doing is pure and natural. I'm, I'm getting strains of the Williams sisters when they was like, oh, they just naturals. They practice every day. But I, I hear you, Leonard Bernstein, you think you're giving a compliment. So I understand. It's a social structure compliment for Negroes because that's who he is to you. But you don't even understand. But the point is that uh, I'm trying to make is he has this network that he comes out of and it's a black network. And that black network stands on its own. And from that institutional strength of that network, that governance formation, you can bring in white people. Danny Barcelona, the drummer, Jack Teagarden, the trombone player. I mean, that's one of my favorite Louis Armstrong duo, duets. It's him and Jack Teagarden. Old rocking chair got me. <laughs> that's my song right there, boy. Bring me that gin, son. You know you don't drink gin, father. Boy, I tan your hide. You're going to tan my hide. Mm, man, can't get from this cabin. What cabin choking, father? Mm -hmm. Just sitting here grabbing, grabbing by the rings of my old rocking chair. I love that song, man, because them two right there, but Jack Teagarden was white. Well, that's what they say from Texas. Every time I look at him, I say, I, shit, I got cousins that color. But anyway, the point is this. When they wouldn't let Jack Teagarden them play New Orleans after they gave him the key to the city, he was the king of the Zulu parade, talking about Louis Armstrong. He said, I ain't playing here. And eventually, don't even bury me here. So the airport in New Orleans named for Louis Armstrong. Stuff named for him all over the city. But Louis Armstrong buried in New York. When we when we reinterred uh, Mother Kepha Neftis this summer, I think I told y'all, you know, it's my first time getting a chance to go where Pops was buried. Pops and Louise, it's a beautiful thing to make that pilgrimage. But this, this, this question of institutional strength and power, Armstrong had to negotiate a world where there weren't yet institutional spaces where he could practice his cultural meaning making his craft and be able to do it protected from that structure so he has to get fall in line with a gangster like joe glazier and be like look man you handle all the booking you handle all the business you handle all the contracts i'll play my horn and people say well you know the guy was exploited they exploited lewis armstrong but lewis armstrong was doing what he wanted to do but if he had had a choice would he have done that i think his whole life gives us the answer to that and the answer is no now when we think about it Louis Armstrong makes transition in 1971. That's the same year Calvin Butts finishes his uh, credits for Morehouse, even though his degree says 1972. Because as he said, I should have tightened it up a little bit. 
But as we think about this question of institution building and power, we have to remind ourselves that we are in a genealogy and in a tradition and in an art in the contemporary world where we have the full advantage and benefit of everything that has come before us if we will take the time to anchor ourselves in it. And if we don't take our time to anchor ourselves in it, that doesn't mean we still won't have the feeling. It doesn't mean we still won't bristle at injustice. That's, it doesn't mean that we won't say this is wrong, but it does mean that without that kind of collective institutional grounded study and application of practice, which is why this course that we are undertaking that we began really last Monday, and I'm loving it because now it's really starting to sync up well. You know, in class, here we are on Saturdays. Mondays is, is increasingly driving this. You're going to see more of it as we get into this collective work. And this collective work, as I said last week, where I said this Monday night, we're talking about curating, collecting, and narrating together. We're talking about listening together to the text and to each other. We're talking about discussing together, medu, speech, as the ancient Egyptians would call it. We're talking about adapting and creating out of these conversations. So when we start talking about curriculum, when we start talking about rites of passage, we start talking about programs, we're talking about collective work that isn't driven by one or two or 10 or 30 people, certainly not driven by licensure. So this university or this think tank, no, we are the Mbangi, we are the collective. And out of that, our creative intelligence then gets to be applied and then we bring it back in for discussion, adjustment, and that, that, that applied work comes out of that. Well, you know, we have access to the entire arc of our human experiences, of which the period of enslavement and colonialism is a very small moment, footnote. The footnote, as you say, Prof, we were talking a little bit earlier, this 24-hour clock metaphor, if you took a 24-hour clock and took 24 hours on a day and gave each one of those hours on that 24-hour day a value of 500 to, 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 uh, to signify years, so one hour equals 500 years. That means on wherever we are today, whatever today is right now, wherever you are in the world, as we are increasingly global. 12 o'clock midnight tonight, let's mark that as 2022. We'll use the, 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 the arbitrary dating system we have today, 2022. Since when? Since the year zero. What's zero? The birth of Christ. Oh, okay. But I don't believe in... Okay, no problem. Fine. So 2022, midnight tonight, that would mean that if we back mapped that noon today would be 500 times 12 and then midnight this morning when the day started would take us back 12,000 years so there'll be another 500 times 12 so let me simplify this midnight tonight 2022 midnight this morning where the day started would be 10,000 BC 12,000 years so midnight this morning would be 10,000 BC. 1 a.m. this morning would be 11,500 BC. 2 a.m. would be 11,000 BC and so forth, coming forward, coming forward, coming forward, coming forward. That means the period of enslavement 
for most of us in this room right now, the period of colonialism for most people in this room, at most would be 11 p.m. tonight, because 11 p.m. would be 1500 A.D., 1500 C.E., as they may use in the dating, the common era, which it really, to me, ain't no difference than Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, because you're still using the numbers. People get caught up and they say, well, C.E. is different than A.D. We don't want to use the Christian. You're still using the numbers, you're still dating it with Christ. So CE means common era, could mean Christian era, means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, is still the numbers. But anyway, 11 to midnight would be 1500. For many people in the Western hemisphere, it wouldn't even be 1500, it'd be somewhere around 1750, 1130 to midnight. That's the period of enslavement. Now we have access to not only the whole 24 hours, which would take us back to 10,000 BC, we got access to months and years before that. Why? Because the species has been around a long time and study allows us to do that. Now, if we don't have study, and this is where I talk a little bit more about the class in a minute before we turn our attention more directly to Calvin Butts and, and take the occasion of him becoming an ancestor to help us, again, think collectively about how we navigate power when a social structure is, that is set up to keep us oppressed continues to poke in and interfere as we try to grapple our way through and try to figure out how we can not only preserve ourselves, but contribute to humanity, as W.E.B. Du Bois says in his famous 1960 speech at Johnson C. Smith University, whither and now and why, you know what the American Negro wants? The American Negro wants to do what African people have always done, to contribute to this world in the ways that we contributed to it in medieval times and ancient times. In other words, we've always contributed in ways that helped all of humanity. We want to be able to do that now. You know what we're going to need to do that? If we're going to stay in the United States, well, you're going to need to change all these damn laws and get that stuff out of the way and then get out of our way and we make the same contribution we made before now. So we're not trying to integrate our culture into your culture. Clearly, your culture is uh, is got some problems. Clearly, many of our cultures have a lot of problems, but we all going to come in with our cultures and we're going to have a conversation. What we're not going to do is become blackface you. Sorry, all you Negroes who love blackface white people. I mean, you just got to stop worshiping your master. That's what you just got to stop, which brings me to the point. If you don't, if we don't do this collectively, if we don't have this space, then we just out there with the same feeling, something's wrong, the same angers, but then we just out here talking, which brings me to Kyrie and them. Now, mad at these cats. Now, where did Kyrie Irving go to college? I'm sorry, where did he play? What school did he play for? A few games at Duke. Thank you, thank you, because I almost said went to college, and I'm glad I corrected myself. Thank you. He played a few games for Duke. Shout out to Mike Krzyzewski and the new guy who's coming in, whatever. The new the new master on the new, uh, for the Duke brothers who made their money in tobacco. Shout out to slavery in North Carolina, Tar Heel State. But the point is this. You know, some of these children still aspiring to put that blue devil on their chest. But I mean, hey, you know, it's got to break that chain. But at any rate, uh, Irvin... He said, Kyrie Irving, crazy. He's talking about flat earth. He talking about, you run around talking about that the election of 2020 was stolen. I'm really making a difference between you and him because he's been playing basketball. He's clearly a smart kid, but without institutional formations and groundings, he's going to pick up what he can from wherever he can because he knows something wrong. You not only know something wrong, you're the architect of something wrong, and now you out here deliberately spreading misinformation. So between the two of y'all, who is really the villain in this piece? But we ain't going to get into that. What Kyrie Irving needs is increasingly people to surround him. If you're just watching and listening to Kyrie Irving, you can kind of tell some of the people he's been around. If you're in governance formations, 
So yeah, this latest thing with the Hebrew Israelites, y'all seen them cats? You seen them at the clothes pen down there in downtown Philly? You seen them over here in Chinatown in DC? You seen them in New York City with the chaps and the turbans and they got the pictures and they reading out the Bible and the Quran? And they, yeah, you know those cats. Now, if somebody listening don't know what I'm talking about, if you're of African descent, it's probably because you're from somewhere else in the African world where y'all don't have them. If you're not from African descent, there's a peek into the governance formation for you, but only a peek because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. Because again, these are people grappling, trying to build some type of sense of understanding, but they haven't tapped into the type of cycles that can help in a way that will engender them and unlock them and jailbreak them. So, I mean, in terms of our class, our class is based on the experiences we have had in these type of learning formations. Pause. Remember that, as I said, if you're taking James Brundage or a lot of other writing about this, they say these institutions that we associate with Western civilization that have shaped our experiences over this last hour of history on our 24 hour clock metaphor, this 11 to midnight period, 11 o'clock, that's about when Columbus bumps in. Now to put it in perspective, Maybe around 3 p.m., that's when you see the pyramids go up. Now, black people been up all day. We've been up all month. We've been up all year. But this last day we talking about on this thing, you know, pyramids go up around, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The Greeks show up about 7. Now, black people been been plotting stuff and planning stuff since midnight. Now, Columbus just lost at 11 o'clock. 11 p.m. Phyllis Wheatley ain't even on the boat by 11.30. And here we are talking about Kyrie Irving. So, but the point is at, you know, midnight. But in our class, what we have learned is several things. If we're going to study collectively, the reason we're calling it a course of study is because the thing that will hold it together, I'll talk about in a second, about two minutes. Now, what, what am I talking about in terms of experience? One thing we learned in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, which is just one of countless other programs where young people were coming around with study. You know, we would do that program in about a month and a half in the summertime. July, part of August. Trainings in June, maybe early spring before school is out. Then we go in and we launch. We got a common text. We got curriculum. We got all these books for young children. We got the older children teaching the younger children, the college age students with the young people who are teenagers, then with the little children. And we got this whole thing in place modeled on the freedom schools of the 1960s. And in Philadelphia, modeled on the learning enterprises that go all the way back to where Joyce Abbott went to school, Cheney, when it was 1837, Institute for Colored Youth and still in Philly. So you look at Abbott Elementary, his name for a who went to a school that has its roots in 1837 in Philadelphia. Chew on that for a minute. But at any rate, the point is that we then go back to Kemet. We take it all back. We're going to do it in six weeks. Why? Pay these young people to sit down, go to school, to become bits of teachers themselves with younger people, get them engendered in the rhythms of teaching and learning and structured around some key texts. Beautiful. Six weeks. Then we extended it and said, we're going to do a year round thing. We'll meet once a week, maybe to, uh, then go to twice a month as we have resources, this kind of thing. Shout out to the Center for Black Educator Development. I'll be up there. They're having a big black male uh, meeting of black male teachers in Philly um, in November, if there's still a country. In November, uh, I'm sure there will be. A, I don't know what's going to kind of look like. Anybody coming to Philly mess with us? Like eight, 700 people have already registered. Uh, Sharif El Mekki and them crowd, the crowd, let those brothers and sisters. Um, and so we're going to be doing that, but you know, we got a year round thing now, the center for black educated development. We, we follows in the line of 20 years of doing this freedom school thing. Then we have 
um, in a kind of course that you and I teach, Prof, and anybody teaching at the university, it's usually man, 12, 13, 14 weeks. 12, 13, 14 weeks, 14 week class, right? So, but this course, learning from those courses, we're building it collectively. So as I said, Monday night, you know, we're gonna borrow as well from the study group models. Study groups, there's a big thing around book clubs, people reading books and discussing. We did that for months. It wasn't a book club. We're having conversations around common texts, as I've talked about many times before. No need to go over that again. We wanna draw that energy into this course so we got common readings the thing that holds it together as i said i was going to say a few minutes ago the thing that holds it together is the course of study the syllabus so Kyrie ain't got no syllabus and a syllabus at its best should be prompted and contributed to by folk who have thought about what are the best prompts for us to do collective study and then branch out and do that praxis, that applied knowledge, that practical. In other words, you know, you're looking for a kindergarten, you're looking for a preschool, you're looking for a first grade, you're looking for a high school, you're looking for a rites of passage for, you know, if you're looking for that, if you're looking to enhance your sorority or fraternity, if you're a Mason or, or Eastern Star and you want to do something for some teenage, well, if you're in this course, there'll be other materials that you'll be able to think with and through and contribute to, and then you apply that in whatever way you need to do it in this space. We're adding another option in that space. So, and we're drawing on the expertise of those who have done this many times, whether it be the Freedom School folk, whether it be Larie Daniels' favor and all that work that she has done and she and her husband have done over the years and their children, whether it be all those things, we get in this space and then we mix and mingle and look and see and test and talk about and fill in gaps and change other things. And then we take the stuff out as we're doing that and apply. So this course of study is not six weeks. It's not 14 weeks. It's gonna be driven by how we progress through the syllabus. But the thing that keeps us on the metronome, the rhythm is the syllabus. So we have that, we have that. Now, that is what allows us then, that's what would allow a, a Kyrie Irving to get up and say, I can discern and distinguish between a text that has some holes in it, a text that is incomplete, a text that is not worth spending time on, except to say, don't start there. In fact, don't even read that. Come over here, because time is a finite resource. That's what allows you to do that. Now, they weren't going to teach you that at Duke. They weren't going to teach you that at Duke if you went to Duke. But you didn't go to Duke to go to class. You went to Duke to go to Mike Tachewski and the league. You understand? And that's okay. Now, if you get enough cats like Kenny Anderson, who's coaching for Fisk, the basketball team, if you get another, you know, if Don Staley was to, you know, decide that, you know, maybe I'll go from South Carolina to South Carolina State, then, you know, you, this whole thing could collapse and maybe you would get some classes like that would be close to this. But even those classes would be 14 week classes. No, we're talking about a rhythm that's going to be driven by how far we get week by week by week by week. And so if you, you know, obviously, Another footnote, if you miss a class, everything's recorded in, in narrative. So we have it there. We have the page set up in Nubia and narrative. Everything is there. Thanks, Uraeus. With the readings as we add them week by week, the syllabus as we adjust and make adjustments and say we're going to carry this conversation over. As I said last week, part one will be our conceptual category. So uh, session by session, we will go through the social structure, governance structure, ways of knowing, movement and memory, cultural meaning making, science technology, didn't do them in order there, so let me do one more time. Social structure, governance structure, ways of knowing, science and technology, cultural meaning making, movement and memory. And then part two will be applying those 
conceptual categories walking us through time and space. The first question, how do we undertake the study of African experiences? Africana experiences, that's going to be the conceptual categories. We introduce them as we go week by week by week by week. Then the second framing question, how do Africans preserve and affirm their ways of life and, their, and, and use their experiences and cultures as means to resist oppression and enslavement? It's going to pull us into that 500-year room, that 11 to midnight window, but it's going to be with the momentum of memory that we've built up over the first part of the course. So we don't start our history from slavery. Everything since then looks like progress if you do that. And I think I mentioned Monday night that I got my hands on. Uh, before, before you do that, can you just, because um, you said the readings, you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, what Black Studies is not. But yes, what uh, Black Uraya Studies said, Uraya said that you replaced that with. Oh, my God, I did. An intellectual history of Africana studies. I so sure did. Thank you. Thank you so much. Because right. that, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Professor Hunter. That was Uraeus. He sent me a text. He was like, No, no, no. Uraeus is right. I put up the readings already. No, I swapped. I swapped it out. I did. And I told him, Don't, 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 don't write. Right, right, right. Because, oh, thank you. Because this is this is critical. That gives me a chance to say this as well. We're all bringing our bricks. I think the first uh, college level Black Studies class I taught. Shout out to the elder Oki Onyejekwe, and my brother, who is now ancestor Troy Allen we were his teaching assistants. When Jackway walked into the class in the fall of 1990 at Ohio State and said, this is my class. These are my teaching assistants. Stayed a week and left. <laughs> so me and Troy taught that class. So that's the first time I taught. That was 1990. And every semester and most summers since, I've been teaching a form of Africana studies and a full range of different types of classes at Ohio State, at Temple, at Columbus State Community College, in the women's prisons, at, 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 at Howard University, and all the stuff in between. So all that is emptied in. And so, yeah, I made that audible. In fact, it's from a reader called the, the African-American Studies Reader. It's toward the intellectual history of Africana studies. Yeah, this week we're going to talk about what is Black studies? What is Africana studies? Where does it come from? And we're going to break down in terms of the whole rhythm of Africana studies for this first course of study, which is an hour, not an overpacked hour. Because when we have office hours on Monday night in Nubia, so the first hour we're going to do the course, the second hour we will continue in our conversations in office hours, which are driven by has folk come in. And we're going to solve and save out time in that first hour for this kind of conversation around the course. And we'll see how it bleeds over into the second hour. We'll make the adjustments as necessary. So it may take us a couple of weeks to go through these readings, but we're going to do it in a way that ground us. And so the uh, the history of Africana states, we're going to look at several movements. Ex Number one, we're going to ground it in Africa and Africana because Africana states is an extension is an absolute extension of Africana intellectual practices because there were no Africans in Africa. There were people in Africa. They get that label put on them as a result of that 11 to midnight business. But we're going to look at some of the thinking traditions, the ways of knowing that come out of those people that find their way into our practices that we've never stopped doing, that we've adapted, discarded, added to, mixed around. So that's the first iteration of Africana studies. The second iteration is what happens when we get hit. So these last several centuries, the so-called black radical tradition. Some people use that phrase. We'll talk about that a little bit. What happens when you get hit and you, all of a sudden you become black people? You're on a ship together and now y'all form an identity. It used to be Yoruba and Igbo and Congo and Mande and Efik. And now you in, now you are, what is that, a Haitian? You're a Haitian? Yeah, and this is a cutlass. Why? You're going to give me my freedom. Boom, boom. What the hell? This is the creation then of a something that didn't exist before. 
at the center of that, we're going to look at some of the practices through which we became African people. This is a form of Africana studies. This is a form of Africana studies. And then we're going to look at attempts to shoehorn those experiences into these hierarchies of the social structure. The hierarchies of the social structure include formal education. People say, they don't teach us about our history. Why? Well, that's because the social structures were set up so that you didn't know your history. They're an extension of enslavement. They're an extension of the attempt to narrate your humanity based on somebody else's humanity, a social structure concept. So why would you expect the university to teach you about yourself unless it's an HBCU? And why would you expect an HBCU to do that if they're pop modeled on the HWCUs? And then we'll get into the pushback against that because what we see is after decades of perpetually trying to move toward liberation through formal education, which we value extreme, extremely, by the time you get to the 1950s and 60s, particularly the 60s, and you expand the number of people of African descent who are finding their way into these formal educational systems, the pushback comes as these people who have never stopped being Africans want to see themselves in the curriculum. And that is the birth of formal Black studies. That's the thing I got my degree in. On, on the academic side. And so we're gonna talk about all that because that then prepares us to understand that what we're doing by jailbreaking Africana studies is continuing the work of thinking traditions that we never stop doing, but freeing it from the hierarchy of the university system, which is set up to replicate the existing social arrangements. So some of the most brilliant people in the world doing black studies at the university are basically talking to themselves and 100 or 200 other people getting prizes. And meanwhile, the people get suffering. But the people are the source of Africana studies, not the subject to be talked about through black studies. No, we don't need any more field reports. You know, oh, it's a fascinating field report. It's an interesting field report. It's a lot of good field reports. And it's very useful information. But the question that Sonia Sanchez drives that you, Professor Hunter, made that seventh category, which is the transcendent category in our conceptual framework. Yeah, but uh, 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 but how do it free us? Well, it frees us because we're going to get some grant money. OK, I'm not going to argue with y'all. No problem. But we're going to create a space where we just pour, we're trying to pour the cleanest glasses of water together as possible. And so that's the framework of the course of study as we move down through it, parts one and two. And, and as we do that, somebody like a Kyrie Irving or anybody else and everybody else has the ability then to draw from a collective that will be, no, brother, see the protocols of Zion. Talk to him, Baba. Yeah, I remember when we was reading that, man. We was reading that back in the 80s. And I remember this bookstore in such and such, Trenton or New York or D.C. or Atlanta. And we was in there. We was like, yeah, man. But then we realized, no, nah, that's not it. Then we started studying something. Else. What about you, uh, sis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nana, come on and say something about this. Yeah, you know, I studied Hebrew. And let me tell you all something. In fact, in fact, I lived in Israel. For, in fact, I'm a falasha from Ethiopia. And here's where, you know, we think about y'all call it the beta Israel. So we're going to talk. Oh, oh, oh. Then we stick a microphone in your face because somehow the social structure thinks ball players are academics. They know better. But they don't need black thinking that can't be caricatured. In fact, they need black thinking to be caricatured. Right, because you gotta have somebody to boo in the arena while you eating that old price popcorn and screaming with that tough hot dog and paid five hundred dollars to get in the room in the first place. But the point is, when they stick a microphone with somebody's face like that and they say something they can't use, all of a sudden it's not getting reported. Why? Oh, well, damn. Really? Yeah. What you know about it? 
Okay, exactly. Exactly. Hard to caricature somebody who is coming out of a space where there's collective debate, discussion, learning, and there's that intergenerational conversation where everyone is valued. This is the other thing we dictate to young people. Everyone is valued. So let's let, let let's 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 continue this. So that's you know Monday night we embark on that with uh, Abdullah Kalamat, the piece from his article um, on the history of Black studies, and the short piece I wrote in Nate Norman, my man Nate Norman, down in Morehouse now. Um, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the book. I'm not gonna get up and and pull either one of them because it's already been put on. Uh, Nubia, thanks to a narrative, thanks to Urias. Thank you, Urias. Uh, toward the intellectual history of Africana studies. Uh, Abdullah Kalamad, of course, was on that faculty at Morehouse when Samuel L. Jackson, as an undergraduate, got put out of school in 1969 for holding the trustees at Morehouse hostage uh, when they took over the building where they were having the trustees meeting. The previous year, Calvin Butts, who was also on campus at the same time, going to some of the same study groups, having conversations with Brad Brown and, and Stokely Carmichael, as he told Larry Crow in his History Makers interview. Well, Calvin Butts, the night Martin Luther King was killed, they were in Sale Hall, according to Dr. Butts, Reverend Dr. Butts, watching Shane, the movie Shane. And they stopped the movie and said that the King has been shot. What? So they go back to watching the movie and then they stop it again. So what the hell is it? He's dead. What? They go out in the street. Count Bus talks about making and throwing Molotov cocktails. He said, we burned a few businesses. We was out there wild. And then he said, we came around the corner and saw these white boys with guns. And that's when I realized that violence is not the way. <laughs> you know, Count Bus said, in fact, Prophet, you, you there. I mean, <laughs> you know, what kind of, what kind of, I mean, I only uh, met Count Butts a, a few times. In fact, he that was a beautiful thing. They had John Ray Clark's funeral, and like so many others, at uh, Abyssinia. And I never forget, Butts presided over it. Was there the whole time? This long funeral was beautiful. All the people after we sitting up in the balcony. And Kelly Adams will remember this because we all came from Philly, a bunch of us. Me, Bleedy Watkins, Mario Betty, we was all there. And so we sitting up in the balcony, glad to get in because you know Abyssinia ain't that big. I mean, they have thousands of members. You, would, you know, church ain't that big. So we sitting up in the balcony, thing packed shoulder to shoulder. We like. And the guy elders came over to pour libation because, you know, John Clark had been initiated in the guy tradition in Ghana. He had lived in Ghana for a while. His friend, Kwame Nkrum, was prime minister at the time. Again, governance conversations. And I'll never forget. These cats started pouring libation. But sitting there cool, legs crossed, looking cool as usual. And these brothers is in the pulpit pouring libation, which is not unusual. I look around, Kathy, you remember, I said, is that a bottle of gin? Wait, are these niggas pouring gin on the floor? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Cal Butts ain't blinked an eye. You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, as he's talked about, yeah, I'm a Christian. In fact, Larry asked him, how would you like to be remembered? He said two things. I only remember it as a Christian in the tradition of Christ. Remember, this is not a guy who came into the ministry through a calling. He said, this is the institution that will help us. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in a minute. Lawrence Jones, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, then he says, number two. Because once you're in the ground, brother, as we told Larry, once you're in the ground, brother, you're in the ground. Some they're gonna forget about you soon. He said, but I wanted to say he was a good brother. He was a good brother. That's what that's all. Because once you're in the ground, they're gonna forget about you. Again, study will make that impossible. But 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 uh, I don't know if you have any yeah. memories of Calvin Bus in terms of how he moved. So, um again, uh, being not informed, 
um, my biggest, well, I got to interview him when I was on the radio WWRL when he became the president of SUNY, um, uh, this, uh, SUNY Westbury. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Westbury. Yeah. State yeah. University. Yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That was, that was amazing. Uh, but it was really the Abyssinia Development Corp, you know, that we did a lot of work when I was on the editorial board. We have Darren Walker was the COO because we were having a lot of conversations with them and Tom War Warner about Harlem because of the um, Apollo Theater, which is where the Pulitzer came from because we, you know, uncovered yeah. all of yeah. that. Yeah, so that was, you know, so Darren Walker, who now is the head of the Ford Foundation, was uh, instrumental uh, in pushing in, in Calvin Butts' vision for Harlem, making sure that there were grocery stores and department stores and, you know, uh, the, that the work went to Black black people in Harlem. Yes. You know, um, that really is the blueprint to me. Like, if you're going to be in leadership, if you're going to take these white people's money, you're going to have to make some demands about, like, what, what happened in Atlanta, you know, when, when the mayor of Atlanta said all these contracts, oh, there are not enough people to, okay, we're going to develop the people to have these contracts because you can't have a city of us and not make sure that that money circulates back in. So, And, and Chef's kiss to you and Latosha for calling out Mike Render on that. Yeah. What you say, what, what percentage now of Black people have government business? In Georgia, she said less than one percent. Yeah. When she told, and, and you know, let's be clear: all of the people that are defending him, I see them in the comments in YouTube. You know, like he does a lot for the community. Yes, okay, great, okay. great. Okay. Yeah. That's wonderful. You, you know, I'm not going. You know, denigrate him for doing great things in the community. No question. This, this that you're doing right now is is destructive. And yeah, talking about power, what you just said with right. Manny Jackson, that's power. You're not building the airport unless the thirties contracts go to us. Marion Barry walking in the room saying, until I see at least 10% of these cats in here, lawyers writing bond are black, we ain't doing no contracts in DC. That's different than saying, I got to walk out, I have 15 people. I bet, no, hell no, that's two different things. Thank you, thank you, Professor. Yeah, and, and, and like, you know, Latasha, um, you know, said like at the end of the day, you are you are setting yourself up that you're saying you don't believe in us to win because no you're making these deals with open enemies. You know, we got to be in a room with all people. Why? <laughs> either you believe we can win this thing, either you believe we all can get across the finish line or you don't. So it's only time you had your bets if you don't believe you can win. That's right. That's right. And, so, and, and, and you can make mistakes. I mean, help us because Darren Walker was quoted in the New York Times a bit that appeared in today's paper on him. But, but you know, Butts talks a lot about, I mean, the political choices he makes. I never endorsed a candidate from the pulpit of Abyssinian. But yeah, I came out for Dinkins. But, and yeah, I shook Giuliani's hand. And yeah, I was battling Pataki. with Red Koch. And yeah, Pataki. I endorsed Pataki because Cuomo did walk us through that. I mean, because he's a complicated figure. But it's, but it's different than meeting and then undermining all of the work that's being No done. question. This is and, what I'm asking. Even, yes. You yes. know, I mean, we, we all have these grandeur. You know, well, if we meet with Trump and then we can hold him accountable. No, you got to know who you can hold accountable. And Robin <laughs> Butts came in with a weapon. Facts. You know, all of Harlem, you know, he came in with the largest black church in New York and all of those people, those are constituents. And so when he comes in to meet with a Pataki, here's what I want. Not what are you going to do for me? Which is the normal posture of black. Oh, we're going to elect you now. What are you going to do? No, no, no. I'm going to endorse you, but here's what you're going to do. Right. A, B, C, D, and I want, and it, and it happened. 
And all you got to do is look at Harlem, what Abyssinia uh, Corporation was able to do, Development Corp, to see that he actually delivered on the things that no he question. demanded from the people that he sat in the room no, with. No you don't just get in the room, shake hands, talk, talk about somebody's a nice person. We don't give a damn about any of that. It's no. transactional. These and, and, know, it's funny you said it because he said Giuliani got him. He said Giuliani was a racist. He's still a racist. He said, we were at a church. It's a critical moment. He said, the minister was talking about healing. I had to speak next. So I put my hand out, extended my hand. Giuliani shook my hand, embraced me. And I tried. I called him. I called him. He never called me back. He, he said, but Koch was different. He said, when I confronted Koch, I had been fired on him. Koch is like, why are you talking? He said, he said, you well, you always talking about what, what I should do. That you should, what are you doing? He said, I, we sent y'all a proposal. Again, to your point. He said, we came from strength. He said, you didn't send me no proposal. He said, yes, we did. He said, nah, because you don't know nothing move without me knowing about it. He said, we sent you pros. Koch looked at him in the face and said, huh, well, you know I'm going back and check. Like, he gonna call him a liar. But said he went back. When Koch found out the proposal had been sitting there, he greenlit it. Now, this is a guy's a racist. I mean, to me, Koch is like a white Tariq Nasheed. In other words, <laughs> in other words, Tariq Nasheed gonna say whatever need to be said to keep Tariq Nasheed in the eye. He gonna be against you. He gonna be for you. In a minute, he gonna be a Pan-Africanist. He gonna be jumping on eight eyes. They gonna be, what the hell? Tariq Nasheed is a pimp. Okay, let's be clear. And Koch the same way. No, come on, come on, come on back. Because I really want to ask you about this in terms of butts. Because butts, and he talks about being fairly criticized. He said, I'm not. I'm not divide making mistakes, but this position of strength you're talking about. Yes. Once you have a position of strength, help us understand how important is that even beyond personalities. He ain't yeah. like Hodge. He ain't like Giuliani, but you're going to do what I tell you to do. I mean, how many of us are working in jobs right now? You can't stand your boss. I mean, like, it's transactional. Like, this is family, where we are right now. But outside of this, you know, you make moves to put people in places to be more powerful. It is not about whether you like somebody or not. Anybody that operates in that vibration that, that's very immature, you know, and leadership, we demand leadership. If you're going to elect somebody or if you're going to be in league with somebody that they have to go bring back the, the spoils. Where are the receipts? You know, and it's not enough for them to make deals for themselves, right? Because that's when we have a whole country of leaders making deals that now they are millionaires and they're, you know, they get this money coming in and there's a few crumbs that go. No, Calvin Butt centered Harlem. My gosh. And delivered, you know, and Darren Walker wouldn't be at the Ford Foundation right now. Oh, no question. That no question. who now sits over presiding, giving out money, you know, in the same vein, you know, but not in the same vein. But, you know, it's, it's to me the blueprint for how you lead, and he led through the pulpit, through the church, much the way I'm Clay Powell. That's what led he led through the pulpit. I mean, that's what you you know. If you want pastor, come on now. You ain't got to be perfect, but you got to deliver. <laughs> and it speaks to institutional strength, Rob, as you say, because even Butts didn't have that vision of what a minister should do until he came to Union. There was a black man there who was the first black person, first person of African descent to be the um, the president of Union Theological Seminary. His name was Lawrence Neal Jones, Lawrence and Jones, Dean Jones. Lawrence Jones made transition, I think, in 2008, 2009. I've been at Howard about 10 years when he had made transition because he left Union and became the dean of Howard University School of Theology. Now, the Howard, uh, the Howard University Benjamin Elijah Mays School of Theology. See, when you pull on a Calvin Butts, 
you're pulling on a genealogy of black institutional strength. Lawrence Jones, I'm sorry, not Lawrence Jones. Yeah, yeah, Lawrence Jones. I always think about an, another Jones. But anyway, Lawrence Neal Jones, and see, this this is really when 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 Jeremiah Wright's memoir comes out shortly, it's gonna have a lot of stuff in it because uh it is Lawrence Jones, Dean Jones, who on that Union Theological Seminary faculty, which included at the time C. Eric Lincoln, James Cone, this question of black theology. So Calvin Butts is a young man. 22, 21, 22 years old, coming from Morehouse back home in this learning environment, has these brothers pouring into him. And it's Dean Jones who looks at him as 22 years old and say, hey man, do you have a job lined up after this? Well, no, I hadn't really thought about that. I you ain't got a job. You got a wife, young child, and you know, condolences to the family. Um to Reverend Butts' wife, to his children, grandchildren, to the entire Abyssinian family as his brother begins his journey into eternity and ancestorhood, Maheru, as the Egyptians would say, the voice is true, meaning you did what you, you spoke your speech in the actions of your life while you were on this side that will make your name ring forever. As the young boys would say, ring out. So, so, so all deepest feeling and emotion is shared as this man rises in power and becomes a powerful ancestor. And as we continue to progress forward to meet him on the other side from which we all came and to which we will all return. But he says, Dean Jones says to him, you know, job, you got a wife, young child. He said, I got a, I got a friend. I'm gonna make a call. You need to go up, see him. Who was that? The man that came after Adam Clayton Powell at Abyssinian, the great Samuel DeWitt proctor see this is where jeremiah wright need to tell the rest i don't need to say else. i just need to you know, jeremiah wright see, see, see jeremiah wright sam proctor helped train jeremiah wright when jeremiah wright daddy sent him from philly down there to virginia union sometimes samuel proctor would come to philly to preach and they drive back down together he would or they would drive up to philly when sam proctor was going up that way and he'd get that training samuel dewitt proctor look him up college president you know, Calvin Buster, I ain't the first one to be a black minister and a college president. Samuel DeWitt Proctor did that. You need to understand, I'm not the first one to be a theologian and run an institution. Dean Lawrence Jones, Howard, before that union, before union, he was the dean of the chapel at Fisk, Fisk University. These are the people who poured into him. And he said, it was Lawrence Jones that said, in the black church, a minister cannot just be a minister. Minister must be a politician and an institution builder. A minister must build community. And Calvin Butts said, that's when it clicked for me. If I'm going to be in a pulpit, I can't just be there preaching. You can make the argument that in many ways that Abyssinian Corporation, Development Corporation, was born when Lawrence Jones told all of the students, including a young Calvin Butts, brother, you can't just be a minister. <laughs> no, because this is the black church. This is our institution. This is what we control. And so Calvin Butts talks about those elders that lived across the street from Abyssinian who would cook and bring stuff over and who had all kind of stuff, help the young people, help them when he was the youth minister out in the street there. You know, when Calvin Butts would tell them stories, he said, and then one day you look up and they're not there anymore because they got better housing. But then he said, well, what's going on around here? He said, all the drugs in the neighborhood. You know what? He said, call a meeting with our people at Abyssinian. What can we do? This Dean Jones voice ringing in my ear. And I'm looking at Samuel DeWitt Proctor, who, when I showed up at Abyssinian, because Jones had sent me, said, okay, I'm going to hire you. And well, he said, well, at first, really, I was kind of like a gopher. I'd be at church. I'd be sitting in the, uh, in the congregation like everybody else. And one day, Proctor looked at him and said, come up here and sit on this pulpit with me. 
He's not been there ever since. 30 years. <laughs> then he moved through the thing. This is the training that you get. By the way, uh, Lawrence Neal Jones, as I said, he was the dean of Howard uh, Divinity School, the Benjamin May School, a beautiful building there at uh, the Divinity School campus. And now the university is trying to figure out how to uh, develop it. It's already developed, but I ain't going to get into that because gentrification is real. And there's a real tug of war going on. I, I think the university will make the right decision because we're going to help them. Truth and service, we're going to help them. But uh, the library in the Howard University School of Divinity building, not where they are now, the temporary site over with the law school on so-called West Campus, uh, my friend Yolanda Pierce, Dr. Pierce, who was the dean of the school, first woman to be dean of school. Um, but Dean Jones, the library at the Howard Divinity School building itself, that library was built from scratch because Lawrence Jones, when touring this beautiful former monastery, that is that the Howard University School, uh, School of Divinity building, said, you know, we need a library because he said a library and a faculty. That's the heart of a university. What we're doing in Nubia goes in that tradition, except we're inverting it. We're not looking at the university as a site of authority. We're looking at us as a site of authority. So we build in our libraries. There's a bibliography page in our, our kind of course of study. We're putting in resources. We're looking, we're taking things out. We're experimenting, that kind of thing. He says, a, a, a faculty in a library, that's the heart. And so that library was named. Uh, this is after Alton, I think, became the dean. He's no longer at Howard anymore now. He's a president of a seminary in, 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 in Kentucky. But under Dean Pollard is when they named the library for Lawrence Neal Jones, who was the person who, who envisioned it. But again, when you think of this genealogy, that's who Calvin Butts represented. And so thinking about his journey, you know, when he becomes the pastor at Abyssinian, we think about the fact that the Abyssinian Development Corporation, remember, goes back to like 1987. And so that's real power. Like you say, I mean, he's, he's, he's putting that into practice. He's putting into practice things that allow him and allow us to stand without having to go dance with somebody or do something just because somebody says something. Let me go back a little bit before he comes to back to home to New York when he's still down in Atlanta. Butts talks about, because he was in Morehouse from 67 to 71, this is the period of the birth of black studies. We'll probably talk some more about this Monday night. The birth of university-based black studies in terms of departments. This is the Howard Toward the Black University Conference. James Turner, who we talked about, comes down there. Then Cornell gets their program, 69. And Calvin Buss is an undergraduate school at the time. And Calvin Buss is in all these study groups. He talks about Bill Strickland, who's still around. Bill Strickland spent his, most of his career at University of Massachusetts. Amherst, one of the founding parents of Africana Studies. Uh, Institute of the Black World. Vincent Harding, all this is going on in Atlanta at the same time. And he says in 1970, he hears this speech at this convening of the Congress of African Peoples. We haven't talked a lot about CAP. When we talked about Amiri Baraka and Ras Baraka and Amina Baraka, talked a little bit about CAP. CAP's very important in our governance formations, the Congress of African Peoples. There's still some folk around who, who, who were in that room, in these rooms. Uh, Mike Samanga, uh, whose mother, Imani Humphrey, Nana Imani Humphrey, who's been an ancestor for some time now, that was the founding mother of the Aisha Shule and the W.E.B. Du Bois Academy. You know, the African-centered education world, you know what I'm talking about, in Detroit. Mike's from Detroit. He was a CAP member. He wrote an excellent book on Amiri Baraka and the Congress of African Peoples. Deeply researched, but anchored in somebody who was there. He ain't repeating what he saw in the archive. Anyway, young Calvin Butts goes and he hears a speech at CAP that pulls him into an orbit 
that he had already been in as a child because after they moved out to projects in Manhattan, they go to Queens, Elmhurst, Queens, and Calvin Butts was raised around the corner from Malcolm and Betty's house. So Calvin Butts knew as a child people who were in the Nation of Islam. He also knew how hard it was to leave the Nation of Islam. He said it was some straight hard rocks in the NOI. He said, how did they get in the NOI? And then some of them cats wanted to leave the NOI and the brothers is like, oh no, this is like the mob. Once you in, you ain't leaving. <laughs> so I mean, but said, I grew up seeing them cats. Malcolm lived out, I mean, he literally lived in the same neighborhood as Malcolm and Betty and, and the girls. So he, he goes to Atlanta and who does he hear? Five years before Elijah Muhammad makes transition, he hears Louis Farrakhan. And Calvin Butt said, I seriously considered joining the Nation of Islam. It's very interesting because it ain't going to be in the New York Times. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to be in the public. They'll talk about the Development Corporation. They'll talk about controversial. They're going to mention Adam Clayton Powell. But they're not going to talk. Calvin Butts was a black, is a black man anchored in black institutions. He said, "I, I considered it. I did consider it. In fact, Larry asked him, why didn't they have Malcolm's funeral at Abyssinia? He said, I can't speak to why. Um, he said, I don't know what was going through Adam Clayton Powell's mind, 1965. He said, but there were churches. There was a church that opened its doors, and that's where Malcolm's funeral was held. He said, Butts talks about, you know, this is where you heard Ozzie Davis give the famous eulogy. Malcolm was our manhood, our shining black prince. He said, but if I had been the pastor of Abyssinia, we would have had Malcolm's funeral at Abyssinia. I have no doubt that's true. He says, because Abyssinian is a Baptist church for sure. And of course, there was a moment when uh, um, um, Reverend Dr. Butts critiqued Henry Lyons and National Baptist Convention because Lyons had messed up the money and the board of trustees. And a lot of people say, you don't air dirty laundry. He said, no, nah, you stand for what's right. Again, these are our formations. The church is what we have. He's very critical of mega churches and the prosperity gospel, this kind of thing. What is that doing for us? We, caught, we started a development corporation not to get rich, but to pool our resources. Now we're sitting on a billion and old people got a place to live. And if you're houseless, you got a place where you can transition and you can get some medical care. Got a school you can go to with the kind of curriculum we need where we pay the teachers. I mean, this is what we're doing with institutions. The church is not about the next world. The church is about this world right here. In that respect, he shares it with the nation of Islam. You're heaven and hell on, on earth. In fact, <laughs> Bust tells a story about how, as a child, I think it was his uncle, somebody had this record collection. He go in the house and he hears this song playing. And who is the same, the song? At that time, it was not Louis Farrakhan, Louis X. Because he had a whole career as a Calypso artist before that. He's known as the Charmer. And if you ever hear that song on that 45, Oh, my friends, it's easy to tell. White man heaven is a black man hell. When the white man came to America, <laughs> he gave the Indian the fire water. He said, red man, we'll treat you the best. Then the Indian was moved further west. He said, now the original owners of this nation are cooped up on the reservation. Nobody wants them anymore. <laughs> What is it? Uh, no, 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 he says, now we are, to my black people, now we are the poorest of the poor. Nobody wants us anymore. Oh, my friend, it's easy to tell. White man heaven, black man hell. That was a famous song. Nation <laughs> Islam, Farrakhan, I'm sorry, Louis X at the time recorded that song. First time I met the minister, 
I was like, man, I couldn't stop laughing the first time I played the black man. It was on a cassette. We was in Columbus, Ohio. He just laughed. Oh, brother, did you like that song? I said, man, <laughs> come on, minister. We just... My point is that he grew up around that. So when he heard Farrakhan make that speech, it clicked for him. He, he briefly considered being an nation of Islam. And when Larry asked him, would you have had Malcolm's funeral absentee? He said, yeah, yeah, I would have had it there. They had John Henry Clark's funeral there. Dr. Ben, that's the last time I seen Calvin Butts. He presided over the wake. We were there for hours. We all spoke. Mario, myself, James Small was the master of ceremonies. Tony Browder, Paul Coates printed the programs, drove them up from Baltimore. We all there. And then the next day, they had the funeral. Now, as I'm walking in Abyssinian that day, who pulls up in a van with a bunch of other people because he was on the reparations council for a meeting that had taken place at the same time? Jeremiah Wright. Gotta forget, gotta get them out the car. We coming, everybody came for Dr. Ben's funeral. And of course, Yosef Ben Yakinen, who was hell on Christianity, hell on Judaism, hell on Islam, hell on all, wrote a book, Africa and the Major Western Religions. Dr. Ben, oh my God, oh, he was hell on them religions. He said, your slave master did this. These are religions that did not create, but they're using them to enslave you. And he was all on it. But his funeral was held at Abyssinian. And so I'm saying all that to say this. When people in New York came to Calvin Butts and said, we want to pull resources from you. We want to start a boycott of you. We want you to come out and condemn Louis Farrakhan. He's anti-Semitic. You will condemn him. Calvin Butts is like, see, here's what I'm not going to do. <laughs> What I'm not going to do is anything you want me to do because you want me to do it. He never condemned Louis Farrakhan. Now, there's statements I don't agree with. Sure, and I'll say it. But what we're not going to do, we're not going to play that game. But guess what? Count Bust don't work for you. Count Bust work for black people. And if you hit him too hard, somebody going to raise up on you. Because guess what? We're not worried about that. Now, Kanye running around. I'm a billionaire. Yeah. And now they're saying we're going to put all your money out the bank. Well, where's your team, Kanye? I see the young boy Jalen Brown trying to help you because you didn't attack. They attacked the kids. Who is they? Uh, they would be anybody writing, talking about close down Donda Academy. You know, you ain't got to agree or disagree. You ain't got to like or not like whatever Kanye. You ain't got to tell him go take your mitt. Whatever. Here's the thing. That thing named for his mom and some kids going to school. Y'all really want the school closed? So this ain't even about Kanye West, is it? It's about your flex. They told Calvin Butts, you're going to denounce Louis Farrakhan. Calvin Butts is like, <laughs> I'm going to do what's in the best interest of my people. See, y'all must not know me. Y'all must not know about me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You must not know about us. But see, you can only do that when you have institutional strength. Well, that's, that's not true. You can do it anytime you want. But you have to be prepared to understand that this social structure we're in will make demands because everybody in it is fighting for power. And when you fight for power like that, that's why I said I wanted to go back just a little bit about that because, you know, when we see Calvin Butts, his journey is one that is complicated. Just a couple of other things, and as we kind of wind to a close, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, his endorsements, his interactions with elected officials, his critiques of black folk. You know, I think Larry asked him at some point, or maybe it was just, just before Larry asked him about uh, Reverend Sharpton, Al Sharpton. He said, well, you know, we've had our differences, but he, but people had their differences with Butts. He had their differences with him. Uh, he said at Dr. Ben's funeral, uh, one of the things Reverend Butts said, he, 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 he was sitting there and he said, you know, uh, this funeral was paid for in part by Al Sharpton. Whatever you do or don't think about him, 
and of course my dear friend and brother David West, who was that time on the roster of the uh, of the Golden State Warriors. David West, I grew up in Newark reading these books. See, it's funny, man. You know, some ball players they don't ask questions because they asked the first time and realized, oh, we can't get no copy off you. So you don't see David. You see David West quoted a whole lot. He don't be making no a lot of headlines about stuff like that. But they know who to ask and who not to ask. But my point is this. So I said all that to say that, you know, these relationships with politicians that you see a Calvin Butts coming, including black ones. And when he when he's asked about uh, um, uh, Sharpton, he said, you know, we've had back and forth. He said, but then he did rather than saying thing about Sharpton, because remember, Butts didn't come out while he and Dolores Tucker and them was like, this filth got to go off these, you know, all this cussing and all this thing. We're going to steamroll these 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 tapes, these rap tapes. I'm going to paint over this liquor, these liquor signs over here in the neighborhood. And then some people came for him. Well, on the other side, you know, while everybody, including me, we were in law school, we like, you got to defend Tawana Brawley. You know, you got to believe her. But it's like, ah, I'm not going to jump out there like that. Not, not right now. Now, it's not Abner Nawima. It's not, I mean, as you know, better not do prior because you probably had to report on this. Nawima and uh, what's the brother? Uh, I'm going to do Diallo. Patrick Patrick Norman. Come mm-hmm. come back for a minute. Can you talk to us a little bit? About, I mean, wh- how important was it for black institutions to speak out at this moment when our people, we still getting killed, but it's made a lot of young people in here right now listening. They don't remember any of these names. Yeah. Could you help us? <laughs> I mean, I, I covered um, the Wima. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> it's interesting social structure. I actually uh, became very um, friendly with Justin Volpe's father and his mother, who was a devout Catholic. Um, and we I spent time in that home which is interesting and actually even had uh, writing correspondences with Justin Volpe and his father said to me you know if Justin had killed the Wima we wouldn't be having this conversation he'd be home be no problem and I remember that conversation you know and he's I'm not defending what he did but if he had killed him we wouldn't be having this conversation because you know that that's the acceptable lane right so and it kind of informs what we've seen since right because he's dead you know there's there's a coverage for that Mm. Louima was uh handcuffed to his bed i remember talking to sharp because i was working on uh alan america at the time and so i would it was that conversation that brokered the apology that uh, ended up on the front page of the New York Daily News uh, from Volpe to Louima's family and, the, mm. and Sharpton was working with that. I mean, it's it's interesting. I felt strange even remembering this because it was at the apex of a lot of things that were happening in New York racially. And I was working for the New York Daily News and doing a book with Al Sharpton and in conversation with his mother who you know i still have a letter from her you know just it's it's complicated because we're dealing with human beings and nobody wants to see their child but what they did to louima was unthinkable and unforgivable and yet louima forgave my god you know so yeah it's complicated right but and that's something we're going to talk about Our, our 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 sixth framing question is what organizations individuals ideas did it did african people create to advance promote our interests here's a brother from the caribbean haitian one haitian Haitian, yeah um certainly we see and then 
she ended up writing about this in her book, My Heart Will Cross This Ocean. Amadou Diallo's mother, again, immigrants from West Africa. We didn't make no distinction. Black people were in the street, you know, you know what I'm saying? And others, but black people, no, we're not going, we're going to get in this immigrant beef. This is, man, even what did y'all do? Patrick Dorsma, I think Dorsma was Haitian. Dorsma I mean, was, uh, was, I think he might have, yeah, he was or, definitely, I think he was Caribbean. I don't think he Caribbean, was. Caribbean, yeah, maybe Dominican. I don't remember. He but, African. I mean, it's, oh. you know, yeah, he might, he was definitely from the Caribbean. I'm going to look this up because yeah. I don't want to be wrong. And, but, it, and that's not the gloss of differences. We, no, we there isn't. I mean, but there, it's also weird because, you know, I remember the night that Diallo was, killed and having a fight with my boss because mm. I'm on the editorial board and I'm like no rush to judgment I'm like, they, they leveled 30 bullets in a neighborhood 19 of them hit this man he had a wallet not a gun and I said to him could this happen in your Bronx neighborhood Riverdale could it happen in your neighborhood with no no accountability. We're not gonna have any accountability in this editorial. I'm like, how? And I'm, I was I was angered to tears, fighting for some space to leave this man who didn't deserve to die. Something, and I was granted two paragraphs in that editorial. Yeah, because uh, it got it was war to get that, huh? It was it was hot. It was it was it was a hot moment, you know. Um, but yeah. that's why we had to have you in that room. And yeah, I, I'm yeah. bringing back all the memories now. Eleanor Bumpers. Yeah. Oh, that was she was the first the grandmother. She was mm -hmm. the first, you know that that uh, what was it a flash bomb that they bust in her house with? And she older lady like who's coming in my house? So yeah, she got a knife to protect herself, and boom, you're gonna blow away a grandmother. It was that. It was like. That drum beat, similar to the summer of George Floyd, you know, it's like a drum beat, right? You know, oh, no, y'all knew all of us. Wherever we were in the United States, we knew those names: Michael Stewart, Eleanor Bumper. I mean, that's you said Hawkins. You said Hawkins. Hawkins. No, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, yeah, it was, and but it hasn't stopped, right? So, this is why zero tolerance has to be, you know, our order of business because we'll just be in this cycle again, you know, and if few years will be another it'll be another summer of George Floyd with another you know list of hashtags and say their name say her name say his name don't forget never forget you know hell you talking about you know say their names uh we've been here before in the 80s we've been here before in the 90s we've been here before in the 2000s and then now uh yeah it's got to stop it's got to stop and we got to stop being distracted by people trying to pit us against each other around things that matter not to anyone but the power structure we're stronger together there's strength in numbers they know that which is why whiteness keeps keeps expanding to allow other people in ted cruz marco rubio and the rest of y'all keeps expanding because they understand the strength in numbers we don't no we don't understand that well we don't have the momentum i mean there, there gonna be a lot of young people in this room right now as we're saying these names who may not remember any of them because they weren't alive but who have been taught these names who know Breonna Taylor and some, unfortunately, now peeking through might not even remember Sandra Bland. Mm. I mean, who, you know, and I think about during that period that you were there waging this fight. We we didn't live in New York, but the reason that we knew so much about it was that we had a black press. We had black writers like you and the popular culture, the cultural meaning making. I think about Brand Nubian. I mean, was it one for all? Now, Huey Newton was slain and we all felt the pain of Yusef Hawkins. And they was mad, but we were squawking. They tried to show 
false compassion. Yet at the rally, it tried to bash in our brains, further adding to the bloodstains. I was mad at the news and so was my brothers. And I wanted to get violent, but I'm a lover of black mothers and black mothers need sons, not children that's been killed by guns. I mean, it's, we, we knew those lyrics because Brand Nubian was pumping that stuff out. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you think about it, and now contrast that with today. I'm not saying that young people are not making music, but I'm saying if you don't have, you know, there's a difference in art. Everybody get to be expressive. But then I think there was a different mood, don't you think? Back then, we were getting the street differently, I think. Maybe, maybe not. We hadn't had the, uh, hmm, we hadn't had the money pumped into, say, different things. You know, that was freedom. Public enemy was freedom. Brand Nubians, poor righteous teachers, leaders of the you know, new school, wise and who we, you know, yes. uh, I got my got my uh, rap snacks. Uh, I, from, I see back there. Shout yeah. out to Wise Intelligent. You know, um, yes, yes. And, and there was there was an edict. You know that you hip hop was really about what was happening, even even the message, right? Mm. But we weren't calling each other out our names and all this hypersexualism and all. And I'm not being a prude. I'm saying that that mm-hmm. music you can recite because of the beat, that drum that comes from Africa yes. and it gets in your soul. And if yes. two and three year olds can recite lyrics because of that music, which they can, I've seen it. They can't read and write, but they can recite lyrics. How about that? Don't we have a responsibility to make sure what they're reciting over and over again, which is the thing that we teach repetitively as teachers for people to remember and then pass along. Don't we have a responsibility to make sure what they're repeating is edifying. Mm. Don't we have a responsibility? Yeah. And to, and to, and, and to use, and to use the momentum of our memory. I'm thinking about even with that brand new song, Alamo DJ cuts in from the last poets. Come I on. hear the time is running out. I mean, how do you even know that? And even with this Louis Armstrong documentary, I was very edified because the voice of Louis Armstrong in the documentary reading correspondence from him is not someone who sounds like Louis Armstrong. It's Nas. I said, look at that. That's a beautiful thing. I mean, this is the momentum of memory. So yeah, I think we do have an obligation. And again, this is not a critique of what's being broadcast because we know the social structure doesn't care because as you know better than I do, there was a war on that type of music. The crap that, he, that out of which emerged a, a, a poor righteous teachers out of Trenton and a public enemy and you know and, and all of that uh, for that matter Latifah and the flavor unit all of them come on yeah, thank you Craig Rakim Rakim Rock, no Queens yeah <laughs> they're being Rakim no question that but that very quickly then what's being promoted and you hear and you hear the hip hop artists talk about it all the time of a certain age. You know, yeah, we'll sell this stuff. It's gonna sell. Okay, now we're gonna draw our attention on things that aren't that right there. And and of course, we still have people who are doing that kind of work, who are still young artists. I mean, there's so many. We don't, you know, but we have to ask ourselves, what do we control? And when we control, what choices do we make? Because then you get Christopher Wallace and Sean Combs, and you know, hey, you had. Sean Carter, you can have the shiny suits kind of stuff, but I'm thinking in particular when they have in uh, All for One and they sample the last poets for the outro in a song that's clearly political, then my man turns around uh, with Bad Boy and they put together a song that takes another last poet's line and, and inverts it and makes it complete opposite of what it was there for. 
from the last poet song when the revolution comes as they go through when the revolution comes and he goes through the whole thing he said you know when revolution comes black folk gonna do this black folk gonna, and at the end he says but until then you know and i know in words will party and bullshit and party and bullshit and some might even die before the revolution comes well did he great job baby you took party and bullshit out of that and made it a party song <laughs> anyway the point is this who spent just as much time at howard as Kyrie spent at duke exactly party promoter and, and did the did the check ever come to howard i'm oh, always I don't know. maybe, maybe it was the same one that went to jackson state did the check go to did the did he pledge the check? Did Howard get the check from Puffy? I, I'm not I'm not sure. I don't I don't know. I mean, since I ain't in them conversations no more, it seemed like the shiny stuff, they love chasing that shiny stuff these days. And you know, like to, to your point earlier about our brother Deion Sanders, however long he stays at Jackson State, one thing's for sure, that man delivering resources. And it's changing the game. And of course, with this NIL name images licensing, as we've talked about, they can make a brand anywhere. Wait, so, you know yeah. his son signed the largest contract with Tom Brady's company. I saw that. Tom Brady's company. Com I guess that's a smart move, right? <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm saying. It's complicated, right? Should yeah. he not have should he not have taken that this this kid not taking that million dollars from Tom Brady's company? Should he well, not have done that? Does it does it crack something? See, does see, it now hmm. see here and here here's where we can learn? And again, this class being one of many places where we can drive this conversation, but we don't know what other places are doing, but this is a conversation we have. And just like when Nduku came in on Monday night, we had that a deeper conversation. Pan-Africanism here, here's a practical application of Pan-Africanism. You got Nigerians with more money than God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you wanted, if we were Pan-African, Tom Brady don't even appear in the conference. Tom Brady don't even get in the city to get on the block, to get in the building, to get in the room, to get in the elevator, to get in the room with a conversation we can have. What is right now in Dubai? It's so funny in today's uh, Financial Times. Yes. In Dubai, sure. they're meeting the oil producing folk, right? They, they call it Dubai in the desert. Actually, was no Dubai in the desert. I'm not Dubai. Davos in the desert. Do you know the oil companies are saying, we understand what OPEC is doing. In fact, we think slowing gas might actually be a good thing. Why? Because they are making all the money in the world. Well, guess what? This is global politics. The American Negro thinking about the United States. Tom Brady should starve before he make any money off of black people. But if black people thought beyond the United States, Tom Brady, we'd be like, who? Who is that? Now, I'm going to tell you who, real quietly, under the radar, has been going to make those moves. Keep our eyes on the African people in professional sports who come from other places. Be real. You know, remember Matumbo 20 years ago, 30 years began that in Central Africa. Yes. But Elijah Wan, very quietly, mm -hmm. watch Atatakompo. What just 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 pay attention. See, understand when, when you when you don't see yourself as tied up, or in the words of Louis Armstrong, I ain't got no effing flag, but a black flag. When you don't tie yourself to your master, you might mess around and get free. Because guess what? Don't nobody else tie themselves. You think they tie themselves, they're not tied to it. The Brazilian elections are, are tomorrow, Sunday, Balanzaro has clearly put all this misinformation out. The Brazilian Supreme Court, it's illegal to spread misinformation on social media down there. He's screaming bloody murder, but they got a Supreme Court. In this country, 
the Supreme Court has basically said, we're going to let these white boys ride till the wheels fall off. And what are we doing? We debating about television, social media. Am I going to stay on Twitter? And some people need to go and vote. But I'm saying all that to say that if and, and said is in the in the chat too. I just saw him. I saw oh, him. good, good. Yeah, said because I know. Yeah, I know the election. In yeah. fact, this is uh this is Tuesday's Financial Times. Brazil's judges become mired in poll battle between Bolsonaro and Lula. Of course, reading between the lines, anytime the papers of white nationalism, internationalism say something like that, they trying to make a false equivalency. Now, electoral disinformation is coming from Bolsonaro, and the Supreme Court has stopped it in Brazil. But here's the uh, just a couple of things as we kind of wind up. Brutal week for big tech as investors knock $550 billion off market valuations. So you see, in fact, the first line, more than $550 billion, that's half a trillion dollars, has been wiped off the value of the biggest U.S. digital companies this week with big tech's headlong growth stalling because of the slow slowing global economy and mounting cost pressures. Now that was on Tuesday. By the time you get today, of course, Elon Musk closes deal for Twitter as big tech valuations lose billions. And what are these pyramids doing up here? Oh, yes, right. I think we were gonna mention it because we all going to Kemet and people have started putting their stuff in. This is this is the financial time. We ain't gonna see these people when we go over there though. This is uh the financial <laughs> times weekend eternal Egypt journeys through uh time and they got a long article on Egypt, there goes the Horem Akhet, what they call the uh, Sphinx, erroneously, using that around. Here goes uh, Huku and Hafre, the pyramids we'll be going to. And I'm reading the whole thing, and then at the end, they put a price tag on it of 4,500 pounds for an eight-night trip. I'm saying, this half as long as we're going to be there. And you... Ch- <laughs> And they're going to do a whole lot of other stuff that ain't got nothing to do with study. Well, they ain't going to do nothing that goes to study. They're going to be over there partying. This is how the rich white people are doing. But we ain't going to run into them because we're going to a lot of places they don't go. But Sanders could have signed. You think about an international conglomerate. It see, it's one thing Rich Paul and them to, oh, and by the way, I, I read an article also that says that CNN, I don't know if you saw this, Prof, you might have seen it. Let me see. This might be, it may have been Friday's papers. I'm not going to, I won't be able to find it quickly. Uh, CNN has announced that they are no longer purchasing documentaries. They're done with that as a cost-cutting measure. Mm. And so uh, they said they got one on Black Music that's coming out soon. They got a couple more, but that's it for them. So I'm just thinking about that in terms of Nubia and narrative as we are thinking about going into that space as well. There are going to be a lot of spaces dry up, which brings me back to the point I was raising, as you mentioned, uh, Sanders signing with Brady's company. When you have your own, then you don't have to worry about even financial resources. This is another lesson we get from Calvin Butts. Um, I wanted to mention one other thing as we kind of close, and that is, of course, with the uh, we're getting close to election time. We got one more time together on Saturday before uh, the, the thing goes down. Um, this Wednesday, I was going, walking into my class at the law school at Howard, and who's standing outside the classroom door, the seminar room door, but Dr. Daniels, Ron Daniels. Ron Daniels, what you doing in town? He's making sure logistics are in place. We're going to be at Howard on the 10th of November for a town hall after the elections. And I'm you know, still joking if there's a country. But, <laughs> and, and so he was there in town looking at logistics. And I said, well, you ain't coming up here 
and not come in this class. And if you come in class, you got to stay. So if you want to talk to me, we're going to talk after class and you're going to lead the class. And so we had about a three hour conversation wow. around voting rights because we, that, this actually, ancestors don't make any mistakes. This is the chapter. This is the week where we did the chapter in our case book, Derek Bell's book on voting rights. So the students update what has happened since the last edition of the book. They turn in papers on, you know, the case law and the statutes policy makes. So we had the whole conversation right up to up again, the Milliken case, which was argued a couple of weeks ago. The one Katanji Brown Jackson jumped on you and Angie Porter had a conversation about. And then I said, but we are fortunate. Here's a man who was in the room in Gary 1972, who helped broker the compromises that led to the National Black Political uh, Party that did all of that work who was in the brain trust with Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88, who ran president himself in 92 and in all other things. Now, you know, there are some things that Ron Daniels, Dr. Daniels and I don't agree on uh, of recent and that's fine because that's what we do in governance formation, but he's the elder and he's here and these young people had never seen him. I say, man, please. And one of the things that came out, this is where I want to tie it to, uh, to Dr. Butts. One of the things Ron Daniels was telling them is he said, you know, we wanted we wanted to lead a Democratic Party and we encouraged Jesse because that convention in 88, remember when everybody, we was all going down there to fight. It's going to be a fight because there's nobody with enough delegates. They had swept on Super Tuesday, all these states in the South and Jackson should have been on the ticket, at least as vice president. But they released all their delegates to the Democratic National Committee. Ron Brown becomes the chair of the Democratic National Committee. The rest is history. That whole triangulation DLC model, I've seen Barack Obama running around talking in Georgia. Maybe it'll help, maybe it won't help. But that whole conservative Democrat thing. Anyway, Daniels was like, we thought at that point, this black founda foundation in this multiracial rainbow concept, of course, coming out of Fred Hampton and the Panthers, as we talked about that uh, last summer, we could have built a different kind of force. And he says, but here's the thing we, I want y'all to understand, young people. You have a political party. It doesn't have to always be about running candidates and winning elections. Again, listening to you and Latasha the other day, uh, listening to Linda Sarsour talk about the fact that harm reduction in electoral politics is a worthy objective and all politics is local. And so you should vote in part because you're trying to reduce harm among for the least of these. This is why Calvin Butts is negotiating with Pataki, negotiating with Koch, trying to uh, build bridge with Giuliani. It ain't because he a sellout Uncle Tom. You got black people in the street and I need some house. I need some funding. I need my money back. And so even Charlie Rangel, who we said, because remember, Rangel replaces, runs against, and replaces uh, Adam Clayton Powell, the, the previous, the two ministers before of Abyssinian, the legendary Powell. And Calvin Buzzer says, you know, the joke in Harlem is, yeah, um, uh, Charlie Rangel won that election. He beat Adam Clayton Powell by 100 votes. And of course, they were all dead men. But now, <laughs> but he's in there now. And so one of the things Bud said, and he got some apparent zone money. I'm not throwing out the bait with the bat water. This is politics, to your point. It's not about personalities. Ron Daniels tells them, he says, you need an organized function in order to make political choices. If it ain't but two candidates running, you don't need to run an independent campaign if it's going to hurt your objectives. What is the objective? That drives your politics. That's what you and Latasha were talking about. You know, this is very important. And so Calvin Butts, you know, thinking about the fact that he endorsed Ross Perot. And they asked him, well, why did you endorse Ross Perot? Run against Bill Clinton. He said, I couldn't vote for Clinton. Couldn't endorse Clinton. He said, now, parole went left, and maybe that wasn't a good choice. Maybe it was. I don't know. But I could not endorse Clinton. Why? Because, see, I remember I was with Jesse, and we told Jesse, do not cage to the Democratic Party. 
And just like the Democratic Party sent some people to Gary in 1972 to stop that convention from endorsing uh, for creating a black political party because they wanted to stay in the Democratic Party. Fast forward 12 years in 84 and then four years after that in 88, Democratic Party wants black people in the Democratic Party and then wants to try to ignore them. But now we're in 2022 and we got a fight against emerging and open fascism in some ways. The thing we can't do, two things, conclusion. Number one, we cannot ignore the fact that there's a false equivalency between the Democrats and the Republicans. We need to think about what our objectives are and what will help us get there. And then the second thing is that we have to not be captured by any two-party system, but moving in our own interests, build our institutional strength so that we can require, require of politicians and anybody else certain things that we have won not as concessions but because people don't have the strength not to get out of our way and not give us those things but release those things that's that 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 to me is one of the lessons of as you've been saying calvin butts and in, in where we are today in terms of institutional power amen, amen. not just require demand demand i like demand no question power can seize nothing without it that's what fred said <laughs> The requirement feels like it's optional. Right. It feels like Yes, it does. No, it does. Yeah. Demand. I wish I could find, man, I wish I could find. And I thought Charcy McIntyre was at Old Westbury when he was there, but he's not. Uh, he came in 99, I think. And that's not a small thing. Maybe, well, maybe we talk about that Monday night a little bit about, you know, that presidency was important. Yeah, I'm... Uh... You know, president. I mean, because what is it about five thousand people at SUNY Westbury? About a third black, a third brown, maybe a little less than that white. A healthy percentage, over double digits, Asian. That's really kind of like a United Nations campus, huh? Yeah, and it was a tough. It was a tough road for him. You he know? said that. Yeah, very tough watching him. You know, but again, the 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 politics of universities, which you know, which I know, the politics yeah. of universities, the fundraising, and all of the things. But it's not centered in, are we teaching children? There's a oh, lot of bureaucracy and financial management and all of that. Right. But it's not centered, which is what makes this space so incredibly special. And right. hopefully, you know, we can bring more professors in and do more and more. Of it. And, and, and hopefully folk will not be afraid to untether themselves from these spaces that don't give a damn about us. Nope, not nope. really. Black or white. For no, that matter, and, no. and which and which are having trouble because the oil company's making money, but and and please, y'all, don't be saying that a political party is responsible for inflation. The price, in fact, the uh, the oh man, I wish I could find it quickly. I won't be able to find it. The, and, and, and it's not wait, it's not a small uh thing to to note that Saudis uh and Trump and like they don't have a vested interest in seeing Biden succeed. They want there to be somebody else in office. Come on, y'all. That's like, exactly right. That's exactly right. I wish I could man, I wish I could find I know it's in the uh I know it's in the hold on if I if you give me about 15 so here we go. This is the one American executives voice quiet support for Saudi cuts to oil. Since Saudi Arabia and Russia agreed to slash oil production this month, President Biden and other US officials have been in an uproar. But among the American business leaders attending the kingdom's annual investment conference this week, dabbles in the desert, there was plenty of sympathy for the Saudi point of view. Why? Because these cats are reporting record profits. 
I mean, record profits. I mean, inflation, the price of food and fuel, yes. all this kind of stuff. And they, they single-handedly lower the prices. Single, in fact, lower the price. They can make gas a dollar and still make money. And still make no. money. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Look, this is the weekend that. joint. Exxon profits. Y'all see that Exxon profits triple to wow. record twenty billion amid windfall tax cuts. Watch this. Watch this. Exxon Mobil, the largest, no, Exxon Mobil's chief executive dismissed calls for a windfall tax on the oil industry. Remind you, let me remind you where we started a minute ago in terms of this global politics thing. Colombia, they're going to put some tax on oil and gas companies because they got to move them to green energy. That's in their budget. Australia having conversations. Part of the thing that's happening in England right now is they got a problem dealing with this winter coming. right? And this whole conversation about natural gas. Guess what? The United States oil companies, United States-based oil companies, are exporting more oil and gas than ever before in history. And they're exporting it. Now, the gas prices are high here. Why are y'all exporting gas? We don't give a damn about the Look, I ain't got no effing flag except a green flag. In other words, <laughs> you stupid people think that we trying to lower y'all gas prices. We trying to give money back to the point. Says the largest U.S. oil company's results were echoed at rival Chevron whose bumper third quarter profits of $11.2 billion was just shot, third quarter, one quarter, just shy of record earnings reported in its previous quarter, because they've been gouging, continuing a run of strong industry earnings on elevated oil and gas pro uh, products. Earnings in the oil and gas production business were up $12.4 billion in the third quarter, up $4 billion a year earlier on higher prices and a slight gain in output from 3.67 million barrels of oil equivalent a day to 3.72 billion barrels a day. Uh, where's that 40 cent article? That's, that's in another article. They said that if they would just go back to the profits they were stealing this time last year, immediately the gas prices in the country would go and the U.S. would go down by 40 cents. Just if they were going to what they were stealing last year, and they were stealing last year, all Biden and sent out said Biden said, "Well, y'all should um get that, take that money, and put it in stock buybacks." And they, I mean, not stock buybacks. You should put that money in reducing the prices. They looking at him like, "Hell no, we giving it back to our investors." Now, when you run out there and vote for the white nationalist party, because they running misinformation campaigns, which is illegal in Brazil, but legal here. Not to say that Brazil is perfect. We know that. Say it and let us know that. And we can have that conversation and we'll continue to have that conversation. But when you go vote for them and they get in and then they get the presidency back and give a tax cut to these same oil companies who then going to lower the price by a nickel or two for you to say, see, that's all we need to do. And then send it up past anything anybody can pay. Y'all better be ready because these companies are just manipulating the conversation to do what they're going to do, which is profit. So, and, so, so do we have power? Like I think about Montgomery, the bus boycott. Ah, yes. And I'm like, what if we didn't buy gas for a month? Oh, I can't get to work. I can't do this. I can't do that. I, like, you know, I just like, where's the pressure point for them? Where's the pressure point for? Where's their pain point where, where they can be forced into stop doing this? Or maybe we should all buy the stock and then become shareholders and then force it. I don't know. It's like. I just feel like, you know, and somebody in the chat said we should maybe not call it inflation because it's really not. No. It's, it's man-made. So the Fed is meeting now. They try to figure out because, well, see, the problem is once it's broken that way, then you have unintended consequences. 
poor people, desperate people do desperate things. That's true. You know, and we were talking, remember Monday night when we were having a conversation uh, in office hours and, uh, you know, the whole idea around how do we build networks that don't rely on this kind of, you know, this kind of manipulation. Um, There's manipulation. Of course it's manipulation. Yeah, of course. Now, could, could boycott work? Probably not. But what could work is collective work that would enable us to maximize our resources at the same time we build stronger networks. So when the brother from Grand Rapids, you know, can we had a conversation Monday night? I mean, here is a master chef who is trained, who is doing work. And then the brother from Maryland about a month ago, who's got a farm source to farm the table. Then the cats in North Carolina. I mean, we have networks that can be, and of course it's trying to black Madonna with all that farmland in South Carolina. Now it's going to cost money for the gas to get. Yes. But if you're going to spend money on gas, why not spend it into developing a network of farm-to-table work that can put together chefs and farmers and grow, I mean, all this, and then this distribution network, and then they look up and say, okay, we're here to negotiate for a price reduction. But yeah, because we have about 15% of the market share for things that are on your shelves now. Really? Yeah, and we're going to pull all that stuff. We've made a decision. And then, yeah, that's about your profit margin, isn't it? What's your profit margin? About 10%. So we pull our 15%. I know y'all mad at Kanye about them shoes, but I also know that Adidas lost 250 uh, billion, they say, off of 250 million on their profits. And yes, they'll figure out another way because they're going to sell draws in Europe. And they're going to sell soccer shoes and all this kind of thing. No problem. But don't think they don't miss that 250. But that's one dude. If we have a network, yeah, in the short term, the gas going to cost. Because remember in Montgomery, they tried to put the black cab companies out of business because the company started paying just, you said, your fare and during the boycott will be just enough for us to pay for our gas. So then in Montgomery, they passed a local ordinance that you got to char- charge them full, full fare. Why? Because we, we see what y'all doing. The company was in the boycott. So what are people doing? They ignored it. Some people got arrested. Most people didn't. Why? You ain't got the kind of muscle to enforce that. But the boycotts, I think, individual boycotts, that's different. Yeah, but you know, boycotts of networks, boycotts based on right. networks we own, right. that's a different conversation. And today we're too comfortable with comfort. Uh back then, discomfort yeah. was, you know, they could be uncomfortable because racism was way, way more uncomfortable than than walking, walking that's the work. We we are too wedded to comfort, uh, that's to right. even consider uh, a moment of discomfort. That's right. So that's yeah. Right. Well, but these are things we should be thinking about, though. This is how we should be approaching every single facet of life. Like, what's the pain and pressure point? How do we get power? How do we free people? How, you know, like, how do we use our collective might to make things happen, to demand for things to happen? That should be the modus operandi, not, you know, waiting for somebody to. No, no question. And when we can act, we must act. When you and Latosha were talking and you talked about Medicaid expansion, and the fact that there's a billion dollars that could be accessed by Georgians right now and then close six hospitals and get ready to close the seventh one, the only one in, in Atlanta. And these people running out talking about, well, I don't know, you know, Kemp is all right. No, they won't expand. That's your tax money. You're not getting your tax money back. And now you can't go to the hospital. You can do something about that at the ballot box. Now, you can pay attention to other things. Congo going on right now in South Africa. They have in the uh the they've got all the parties at the table except Eritrea, which is interesting to try to squash this Ethiopia, get a ceasefire in Ethiopia. Uh, the former president of uh Obasanjo from Niger- Obasanjo from Nigeria, the former president of Kenya, Kenyatta is there. 
uh, Nguku, who used to be um, over there. I'm saying African Union. She's there. They're trying to get Ethiopia to talk. It's difficult. Meanwhile, in Haiti, we know that the United States preparing an invasion. But at the same time, and we had this conversation with Ron Daniels, too, because he spent a lot of time in Haiti. This Montana group, which is also connected to the United States, you know, Ron's like, it's complicated because if you call elections today in Haiti, who's to say they simply won't just say, well, we had elections and they put another stooge in. You, Haiti needs to stop being interfered with. And we are of African descent. We need to pay attention to that and try to put pressure on people here in the United States who are making bad policy as it relates to Haiti, including some people who look like us in the Congressional Black Caucus. It's very important. But what you can do today is go vote. This is important. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there, there, there are long range and short range. The short range is, are you ready? Go vote. Go vote. And in a place like where, where, where was the, the, the judge refused to uh, halt? Maybe it was Arizona. These thugs want to go out and observe the polls. You, you're trying to scare black people. You're trying to scare our people. So guess what? Maybe we need to go and observe some polls. We're going to observe some polls too. In other words, if you already voted, maybe you want to go out there and just stand across the street while they out there yelling at your grandmother and scaring her. We need some, some of these cats, y'all so tough, just go stand across the street and watch them white boys back up off because they're trying to intimidate people. They, they get ready to try to steal this election. And you can do something about it. We can do something about it. We can do something about it. Yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm here. So you know, Wes Moore about to be the governor of Maryland, and uh, those That's of you who do, that is know. so wild. The, isn't it wild? It is wild. It's it wild. wild. It really is wild. <laughs> West I mean, we, we, we know we ain't gonna say no much about it right now, but you know, ten years from now, we might be looking at the president of the United States. I'm saying Wes Moore look like he threading needle, man. <laughs> And he's not any, you know, if you and those of you who've read Westmore's book, the other Westmore, his recent book, what am I? This is not this no. is very interesting. No, it's, it's, yeah, just say less. For say less. Show. We're gonna say less. No question. Let nobody know nothing. Let us just get but you know, it. they already got him on the radar. So maybe some of the way we protect him is to say more. Say less. <laughs> or, you think what I'm is typically, you know, just like with these oil prices. These things operate well when disinformation is in the pool. Right. These cats are talking every day. Who's right. not talking about it is what we do. Right. The more we talk like this, the more they got to come up with something else. And you can't keep throwing Kyrie. You can't keep throwing Kanye. You can't keep throwing Twitter. Nah, because now we talking. And what we doing? We in the house turning on lights. And you know what happens when lights get turned on? All the roaches scatter. And yeah. this is a roach-filled house called yeah. United States. <laughs> Raid. All right, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you ain't lying. The ray, the roach is on the wall, but yeah. we we do need some raid because we can't let this uh, mother effort. No. No, we, <laughs> we better get. Hey, I love you. I'm sorry. Love we you. I'll be moderating on Monday, so that means you know it's gonna be a little different. Your race is not gonna be there, so y'all, you know, uh, y'all gonna behave in the chat. Up out the paint. You're gonna get snatched up quickly. All right. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to this introduction to African aesthetics. I am, I am too. It's Halloween, so maybe I put on a certain uh, shirt and tie because you know. Oh, uh, that's Halloween, your costume. Yeah. I see you. I see costume. You. Yeah, I need a costume. Right. Oh wait, man, I ain't, do I have any ties? No, oh, scratch that. I ain't got no ties. I'll, I'll put on a suit jacket. All right. Love you, <laughs> Love you too. <laughs>